And welcome to episode 21 of Chin Music, a podcast presented by Fangraphs. My name is Kevin Goldstein. I am in cool and cloudy DeKalb, Illinois. Joining me this week from sunny and blistering hot, I'm sure, Tempe, Arizona, it's our good friend Eric Longenhagen. Eric, how are you? I'm good. I'm uh, in the post-list afterglow. (laughs) It's always nice to have him out of the way. But... uh... But yeah, I'm good. I'm tired. The this stretch of extreme whatever is now coming to an end, and I'm looking forward to the draft because the draft is rad. Even though conceptually I despise it, I think it should be abolished. I still love it a lot, and uh, I'm ready to enjoy and then take kind of a break for a little bit. I think at some point you can, in here, yeah, you can be both. I think it's okay to be both. Um, uh, Derek mentioned the draft. This is going to be a bit of a different show. Um, this is a draft only show. It's the, we're going to preview the 2021 major league baseball first year player draft, the rule four draft. And, uh, it's all we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about uh, some of the big storylines. We are going to be guest heavy. We had a little fun this time. Um, we are going to have four of everyone's favorite draft experts on, and they answered three questions that came via Twitter. Uh, Jim Callis from MLB pipeline. Keith Law from The Athletic, Carlos Colazzo from Baseball America, Kylie McDaniel from ESPN Plus. Um, and it's, you know, obviously we're all kind of in the same world. Like we're all doing mocks. We're all bugging people in the industry. We're all talking to scouts. We're all watching players. We're all doing that stuff. And we're all kind of, you know, eking out a living doing this and, 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 and competing for your clicks. We're also all still friends. Like everyone gets along. There's no, like, I don't, I don't know of any real, acrimony between anybody I, I know all those guys and i like all those guys and that's fun to talk to them yeah there's something about um it's our little subgenre. you got to have find some way to have a sense of community in uh, a mostly online world and so yeah like you run into these people at industry events and you're in the same place randomly a lot of the time just because you have to be you just have to be there uh and so yeah like i don't know that i yeah, there's not a lot of weird infighting and, and drama. I no. think most of us are too exhausted to, to have the energy to do any of that. Yeah. And I think everyone respects each other. And it's fine. I've known some of these people for two decades or more. I know you know, Jim and I talk about it a little bit. We were recording it. Like, I've known Jim for maybe a quarter century. Um, you know, and, and uh, so that, that, that everyone gets along. There's no, everyone likes each other. Um, so, yeah, so there's not, we're not going to do email. We're not going to have a moment of culture. We're, not, we're just going to talk about the draft and, and do draft stuff. And we'll get back to all the fun stuff next week um and, and and thanks to everyone who got in your question we got lots of fun questions um we got to 12 of them because we had four guests and four times three is 12 and i can still do math i got perfect math on my sat eric did you really i did that's awesome i was i was once uh once smart I was did, once so you answered all the questions this was the one thing that i was like uh stubborn about despite like 
being strategically told to not answer questions that I wasn't sure about. Like I'm, I have pretty, a pretty good deductive reasoner. That's why I crushed my SATs. <laughs> I, I, I answered them all. I died a wager on my, on my score. So I had, I had a, I had a, mm-hmm. a reason to do this. I took um, the SATs at a time when there were three parts. Yeah, so no, it's, 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 I, I went to high school in Ohio and, and I don't, I don't know why I'm sure someone else can explain this, but um, the ACT was actually more important at the time or, or was seen as more important. I don't remember why. Like, the day I was supposed to take that, I went to uh, see Chuck James pitch against the Phillies. It was like nice, kind of snowy. I was underdressed, but my friends and I played hooky and we went down to Philly. <laughs> That's well. great. It didn't matter because I didn't go to college. Uh, but it's Eric. It's uh, we're recording this on Thursday, July eighth. The draft begins on Sunday uh, with the big kind of day one festivities. It's a it's a nationally broadcast thing. Um, we get through the first. What are we doing? 63 picks on day one or something like that. And then day two is rounds two through 10. Um, day three we used, used to be 30 rounds is just going to be 10. Obviously, this year, the 20 round draft. Um, and then we'll be done. You'll have plenty of coverage on Fangraphs, which we'll talk about exactly what we're doing a, a little bit later. Uh, but Eric, you know, going into this thing and, and having it going on Sunday, like what do you see as, as you know, some of the big storylines? Well, the the big narratives are going to center around the Vanderbilt arms uh, with Jack Leiter specifically. It's does someone, does he end up where he and his family seem to want him to go if that's indeed the case? Or does someone just pull the trigger and end up with like in some sort of staring contest potentially with him? Uh, it's not like this hasn't happened before. You know, Mark Appel is a is a pretty uh, good recent example with uh, mm-hmm. with Pittsburgh where like it was a college guy who just couldn't come to an agreement and went back to school and then did and didn't want to go to Pittsburgh. I mean, let's just, right. that's, that's what happened. So uh, like there is precedent for this. Right. And then uh, Kamar rocker and where he ends up falling in quotes. Um, if it occurs, you know, he's just had an up down career basically since high school, his stuff has waxed and waned. And there are some teams that look at what he's like at his worst and still like it, still think it's a guy who executes the hell out of his his stuff, and uh, that you're you're getting a good back end starter at the worst. And the upside is that he f- consistently finds peak Rocker, which is you know maybe just the best guy in the whole draft. If, right. if you told me that Rocker was going to be as good every fifth day as he was uh, in like some of those late season outings as a freshman, then he's just the best guy in this draft. So what happens with those two guys is a big deal. Uh, and then well, let's, let's start with them. Let's 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 go through okay. them real quick. Let's 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 not move on. Um, so let's start with lighter. Um, you know the thing that that both you and I have heard, and, and I'm sure all of our guests have heard as well, is that both parties, uh, being the the lighter camp, um, and and the father's very involved, um, as is the agent, as well as the Boston Red Sox, who have the fourth the overall yeah. pick, are, <laughs> are are working their best to, um, let's just say steer. Mr. Leiter to the fourth pick and, and have Boston take him. Um, it's probably some combination of a large number being thrown out. Um, and it might be even as aggressive as, hey, don't take me. I'm not going to sign with you. And they can say things and not be lying like Jack doesn't need the money right now. Um, obviously, his father was a major league player. I don't have his baseball reference page in front of me, but I bet his dad made $20, 30000000 million playing major league baseball. Um, and... You know, because of of a lot of you know, we have the whole COVID situation. You know, Jack still has plenty of eligibility in college left. 
um, all that sort of stuff. They can all they can say all sorts of things. They can say, "Hey, we want sorts of money." They can say, "Hey, we don't want to sign with your team." They can say, "Hey, Jack wants to try to win a title with Vanderbilt." Um, all sorts of stuff. It's tough when you're this good. Um, and Jim Callis makes this point: kind of being a prisoner of your own talent. Um, it's it's tough to pull this off. And and it's and in our last mock, we we had them not pulling it off, and had the Rangers taking lighter at two. Um, do you think there's any chance they pulled this off? Yeah, I think I think that, there's a chance. I don't think it's likely, but I think there's a chance. I would yeah, I would also say that it's it is unlikely. Um you got to remember that the the alternative for teams if you do take Jack Leiter and he doesn't sign but you've offered him slot then you get a comp pick next year in a draft that you know, we've talked to I've talked to scouts and executives who have been on the Cape and who are already scouting next year's draft class and it's exciting at the top uh with you know Josh Young's brother Jace and uh, Elijah Green, a high schooler from IMG Academy in Florida, one of these like weird athletics only high schools. Fake school, um, we used to call them. But uh, but yeah, I think it's I think it's possible. I think it might, as we alluded to in the mock, involve Pittsburgh going in a different direction. As we get closer to the draft, like more and more people are just volunteering to me that they think Marcelo Meyer is likely to go one. Yes. Uh, and so if that happens, then I do think it's very unlikely because now you have two potential landing spots between. Uh, Pittsburgh and Boston, where that we just have to assume that both Detroit, which needs to compete very quickly here, uh, like getting a little long in the tooth here with this front office and not not really showing results on the field yet, uh, although we expected them to, I think, starting this year, it hasn't really happened. Uh, and Texas, which you know the the general sentiment among my sources is that Texas thinks they're closer than the general public does, right? And so both you know both those clubs, their timelines what they perceive them to be fit nicely with with Jack Leiter. Uh so yeah, I think it's um I think it's unlikely that it happens, but but if it does, like good for good for the kid, you know, and yeah, by get the your way, money. Get and like pick your employer, you know. If Absolutely. you're the best accountant in your graduating class, it's not like, all right, congrats, you're the best one. Now you're gonna go work for this shitty accounting firm in Duluth, Minnesota. Like they picked you first. <laughs> Al Leiter, by the way, sixty eight million. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, plenty of players are going to at some point say, I don't need the money. Um, and um, it's it's easy to say. It's a lot easier to say when, when your family, your father made $68 million in his baseball career. What do you think happens at four if Leiter goes before? I It, it depends on what's still out there. I think, you know, I, I think we, we've both heard stuff like this. Um, you know, they really want Jack Leiter. I think their backup plan is Henry Davis. Um, if both Leiter and Davis, the, the catcher from Louisville are off the board, I think it could get interesting. There's a rumor that they are kind of Leiter, Davis or bust. And if they don't get one of those two names, they will look to cut a deal and spread their bonus pool downward. Um, with, uh, Henry Ford of exceptionally athletic high school catcher being mentioned. Um, and so, and so, um, you know, we end up in this weird world where, I don't think that's likely either. I think I, I think they'd probably just play it straight. Um, but I mean, there was a rumor that they were trying to get Meyer down to them as well, and then the more conspiracy-minded folks were saying that was just Me? part of a um, that was just part of a strategy to get lighter down to strategy-minded. I'd call it yes. Right. Um, so this is a rumor that was pervasive a couple years ago with the Padres and Alec Bohm that the Padres were tink like. Uh, messing with what Casey Mize's ask might be 
to try to move him from Detroit down to Philly because knowing that if Philly didn't take Bohm, that he didn't have a home behind them and could and could fall to San Diego. Like again, this is just a rumor, but it is yeah my thinking, and I think you know I've talked to other people who agree that this is at least plausible. But yeah, if you're Boston, you want lighter, and you know that he's either going to go two or he's not going to go. Then if you can move Marcelo Meyer to two by artificially inflating his ask, knowing that Pittsburgh wants to cut as much of a deal up as possible at number one, then you call Marcelo Meyer's agent and say, hey, we'll give you, you know, I don't know, whatever it is, eight million. Then Pittsburgh blinks, takes Henry Davis or whoever, you know, whatever they the, the pick ends up being. Then Marcelo goes two to Texas. Lighter does not, and then he falls to you at four. Like that's if Detroit's not on him, then then yeah, that could work. Yeah, and and, and Harry Ford's a really good player. I mean, Harry Ford's like yeah. this ultra athletic catcher. He's a he's a plus runner. Some teams talked about like just why destroy his body at catching and actually putting him in center field. Um, I actually think that's better than fifty fifty to happen. At this yeah, point. I th- it probably is. And, and and if if nothing weird happens, he would likely go in the teens somewhere. Um, so it's not like a huge stretch. I mean, it's a stretch at four, but it's not a massive. It's not a crazy pick, but. It would be weird. Um, Kumar Rocker, let's, let's get into him. He's a weird guy where if you're doing a mock draft, at some point you just kind of have to find a home for him before the 10th pick comes off the board. But I, like you don't you don't hear a lot of teams going, man, we're taking Kumar. Right. And when we published our first mock a month out of the draft, we had him going seven to Kansas City for just that reason. Like we don't feel as though he's fitting anywhere Above this, uh, it does sound like the Diamondbacks would talk about it if he were there at six, but I still, based on the scenarios that we've outlined, think that they would take one of the high school shortstops that's still around. Um, And so, yeah, like the feedback we got from that first mock a month ago was, no, we still think someone's, even the owner will just come into the room and be like, take the guy I've heard of, you know. (laughs) Uh, But there doesn't seem to be real fits for him, like Four, maybe, with Boston if their board gets blown up. But but now what we've heard is that they would look to cut. And then five, Baltimore, we haven't heard anything about Rocker. No. Uh, six, with Arizona, I do think, like I said, that they would talk about it if he were there. But if the high school shortstops are on the board, It feels well, like they would prefer, like, oh, you know, if, if a Watson, a Lawler, or a Brady House were there, that they would prefer those guys over Rocker. And maybe even Colton Kowser, I think they might prefer to mm. Rocker. Uh, like that if both if all the high school shortstops are gone, that like Kowser is just the guy that they would turn to. Kowser uh, seems to be really moving up boards late. Well, yeah, I mean, we should talk about where on the 100 we think he belongs because we are going to 50 him and stick him uh, like on the ranked players within the top 115 or so guys, which is about how many it is after graduations coming up here. But like, but yeah, uh, so where Rocker goes is like, the Royals would seem to be the way the Royals have behaved in the past is, ooh, look, a college arm that fell for no reason, really, like Brady Singer. Let's just take him. And uh, so that's like the first place where we don't have hard intel linking the two. Mm-hmm. But it just seems plausible that they would they would do it. I don't think Kamar Rocker's any riskier than Jackson Job if he's still around at seven. He's less, I mean, he's, he's obviously less risky. Jackson Job is a, is the high school arm from Oklahoma who might have the best pure stuff in the draft, but it's still a high school right. arm, and you Riley still have Pine your, had the best pure stuff in his. Yeah, draft. exactly. It's it's still a you know it's still a risk just because you know, the fact that it's a high school arm, and so of course Kumar Rocker has less risk. But like it's like I said, it's weird. You know, when you talk to these teams in the five to ten, like no one is no one has just flat out said to me 
I've had plenty of teams say if if player X is there, we take him. I've had no one say if Kumar Rocker is there, we take him. Where do you think his absolute floor is? And then at what point does he basically become unsignable? I, I just I can't see it dropping that far. I think his absolute floor is probably eleven. I mean, yeah. I think if I think if Mike Rizzo staring at Kumar Rocker, I think yep. he does. I think he pulls the trigger there, right? Yep. I think again, that's one where you just look at the the team's track record of taking college arms especially who uh, have fallen for one reason or yeah. another, whether it's a Seth Romero reason or, you know, a Cade Cavalli, like they'll just take the power arm, even if there's injuries still, like it doesn't matter. So uh, yeah, I think that that's, I think that's right. Um, and then it's just about, you know, this is, is a famous guy. We talk about it a little bit on this episode with the new rules in place regarding college players, names and licensing. Is he famous enough that if he went back to school, that he could make a bunch of money in one year? Like, could you make, would Gatorade or Nike or someone like sponsor this kid in a meaningful way that, that he'd be okay with going back to school for another year? I, I know the, the popularity of college baseball has grown. I still don't think it's enough of a revenue sport to be able to, if you're just a baseball player, generate. I mean, I think you can make good money, but I don't think it'd be enough to mitigate any sort of bonus difference between this year and next it's dis- gonna be fascinating do you disagree with that i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> and but I mean, the other thing that, that is important to note is just like this you know we all saw the the ruling and what the ncaa has done uh, in terms of of the name image licensing stuff there's still all sorts of stuff happening uh at the state level um that could diminish this ability um, because people hate college athletes, including the NCAA. Um, another weird thing about this draft uh, is is the, just the length of it. Um, we're, we're up to 20 rounds from five last year still, but that's that's nonetheless half of what we used to draft. And and after the five-round draft last year, um, obviously, you know, there were a lot of NDFAs, but for the most part, you know, there were tons of kids um, – like literally maybe a thousand kids who might've been drafted last year who are back in the draft. Um, it's created a, you know, a, a really exciting depth. I think every team's going to be really happy with their draft class. And while it might not be the sexiest thing up at the top, I think once you add up like a team's day one and day two picks, um, most teams are going to really bolster their farm system. Yep. Um, I think that the thing that we don't know about, this part of it is how the dynamic of the fewer minor league roster spots will interact with the Mm -hmm. fact that now there's going to be a huge 12 to 15 rounds worth of like legit prospects, uh, like guys with who ordinarily would have some amount of like big league utility or, or potential. So uh, I don't know how it's going to work in terms of, you know, I, I mentioned this later, but like college arms are going to get shut down. Probably they're coming off a 2020 season where they didn't have much of a workload and then had a full college season. So you draft college arms. They may not occupy a minor league roster spot for the rest of the summer. Maybe they'll get fired up at instructs again, but, uh, but don't pitch an affiliated ball during the rest of the summer. But there are, I would expect there to be a, you know, a chunk of post draft releases on the pro side, guys who have had for the last sure. couple, couple of months to kind of, have a look at them and and see how they perform, whether it's just an extended or, you know, these 23-year-old guys who are in A-ball. But mostly I think that this is a huge opportunity for 
Oakland, Cincinnati, like the teams who have really thin farm systems to restock in an abnormally significant way. Um, you know, we talked earlier a little bit about our, our good friend, Marcelo Meyer, who's, who's, we have projected to be the first round, the first pick in the draft rather. Um, I think most mocks have him first. And while Pittsburgh has really played it kind of close to the vest, it feels I feel, and I think you, you as well, like more and more confident, like you said, that, that this is who the pick's going to be. Let's just talk about him as a player real quick and talk about um, what's really good about him and, and what some of the question marks on him. This is a, you know, a big frame kid, 6'3", 6'4", uh, 190 or so, left-handed swing with power. He can hit, uh, plus arm, super flashy defender. Like the actions are are very viscerally pleasing um but the question is is kind of the twitch you know he is a he's a he's a fringy runner and he kind of runs funny um he's not like a super fast guy and but nonetheless like he's so good fundamentally at shortstop in terms of instincts hands and like i said the plus arm that people think he can stay there um in in last year's draft where do you think this guy would have gone That's a good question. I think he probably goes two, two or three. Yeah, that feels right. Uh, I think that in a if if we have a normal twenty twenty summer, where the location of the high school showcase stuff is spread throughout the country the way it typically would be, sans COVID, then maybe maybe we'd feel a little bit more confident about this guy being like in a tier of his own above the other players. But most of the West coast kids spent the summer instead of like at the various events that were taking place in like states that didn't care as much about COVID restrictions. So Florida, Georgia, Oklahoma, Texas, and like a lot of the West coast kids didn't go to that stuff. So uh, Marcelo Meyer played most of his summer ball here in Arizona in like wood bat leagues with not a lot of talent. Uh, and it's miserable here in July. And so like <laughs> people didn't really come here. So, um, so maybe that would have an, an impact on how strongly everybody feels about him. But like, you know, this guy's on East Lake high school in Chula Vista, just outside of San Diego. When I went to see Keone Cavaco a couple years ago, uh, who the twins took in the first round of that year's draft, I was like, who's this kid? And the the area scouts were there just like, oh, he's a sophomore. He's better than the guy that you came to see. Right. So it's not as though teams don't have a track record. No, with, he's super famous. Player. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I agree I, with you that it's the questions about shortstop center around like if he runs well enough, but like Paul DeYoung doesn't run well enough to play shortstop. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, but he does. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, if, if Spencer Torkelson was in this draft, he'd still be the first pick. I think I, that's true. Yeah. I think that's true, but I, I I think Meyer would be right there with with guys like Max Meyer and 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 Asa Lacey and Austin Martin and players like that. So I had Zach Veen fifth on my board last year, and like Marcelo is, I think, clearly a cut Better. above. Yeah, right. Um, the other, not the other. There's 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 a number of of really impressive high school shortstops, which is not always the case in a draft. Um, but the player who also had some. Number one hype that's kind of diminished a little bit uh, is, is Jordan Lawler. Um, you know, plenty of people were talking about him being a possible number one overall pick. Um, the two things working against him right now, I think, are the fact that he showed some strikeout problems early in the season that got corrected in the second half. Uh, and also 
And this is purely a model thing. He's 19 years old. Right. Um, yeah, Lawler. I have Lawler evaluated, if, again, if we're looking like back at past drafts for fairly close comps. Like Ed Howard in last year's draft is, is considerably close to Jordan Lawler. Uh, you know, the, the last time this happened where a guy was unbelievable during his pre-draft summer and then swung and missed a ton unexpectedly against varsity pitching the following spring was Nolan Gorman. Um, mm. And he fell. So uh, I do think that when you start to stack the high school shortstops, that Lawler, I mean, Marcelo Meyer is is number one. And then when you look at Brady House, he's the one of the three, Brady House, Khalil Watson, and Jordan Lawler. House is the one least likely to stay at shortstop or a middle infield position at all long-term. Lawler is the one who feels the safest defensively. And is sort of well-rounded, but isn't the the most explosive. Whereas, like House has the most power and power projection because he's a giant, like six three, six four, two fifteen. And then Khalil Watson is the most explosive, like Jazz Chisholm. Yeah, but he's type five, of, and he's five nine. Right, like he's this little stick of dynamite with huge, like rotational ferocity in his swing, uppercut power, like. Really electric talent, uh, but swung and missed a lot at breaking balls during his pre-draft summer. So there's like high variance around his hit tool that there isn't quite as much as around House. And uh, and even though he swung and missed a bunch this spring, I think Lawler. So uh, it is like a taster's choice of the high school shortstops. I think um, – and this isn't uh, – it wasn't scientific by any means, but like – just looking at the high school players who get drafted at 18 and then, you know, are in pro ball when they're 21, 22, they add on average about like 30 pounds. So Brady House is, is 215 right now, and he's barely 18. Uh, he, he's going to be 245-ish. Yeah, uh, someone, someone said, I mean, House is, is moving up on boards. Like he, he could go as high as three to Detroit. Um, which is where we had him in the last draft, and and people like the hit tool and the power tool. He also he, he did great out very well athletically, but like you said, if he, he no matter how athletic he is, if he ends up six four two forty, I had one scout say that's great. He's super athletic. I think he's going to look like Troy Glaus in the end. Yeah, I think that's an interesting comp. I, it wouldn't surprise me if he ended up moving not only to third base but like right field at some point, just because he's going to be so so big. Um, yeah, I, I, we don't know how much these guys are going to grow, but it wouldn't surprise me if he were 22 and he were suddenly like six foot five or whatever, and is just playing right field is built like Joey Gallo or whatever. Um, the, the, the top college position player, um, for everybody is, is Henry Davis, the catcher at Louisville and very interesting player. It's a, it's a absolute big league level approach right now. Um, he makes a lot of contact. He has power. Is an absolute hose from behind the plate, but the catching itself, the receiving and the blocking and all that kind of stuff is 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 kind of fringy and has left some questions about his ability to play there in the big leagues. How much do you think, like, will when framing goes away, which is going to happen, and and it gets talked about in front offices all the time, like that he's he's not a great receiver, but that's going to matter a hell of a lot less when the robots take over. So then the little uh, intricacies of catching then center around like not tipping, basically. Like this Mike Yastrzemski last night. Did you see this with Mike Yastrzemski? And I did. It was a lot of fun. So to me, that's just Andrew Kisner is tipping location with his footwork because of the way his weight is shifting so early. 
Like Yastrzemski is not stealing signs as much as he's just watching Andrew Kisner be bad at some of like the finer points of catching. And so right. I, I still think some of that stuff is going to be important. But yeah, like you said, this guy's got an absolute hose. Uh, at some point, that may just be the most important thing. Who knows if some of the base running rules are going to change too? But like, and that's the thing, like for ignoring the base running rules, like and, and this gets talked about a lot. That's great that he can. He's a tremendous arm back there. How much does that matter? Um, the way teams don't steal bases, right? Um, I don't. I don't know. I think that uh, there was a study on in Delta Graphs within the last year, which uh, was like, hey, pop times matter up to a... The point of it was pop times matter up to a certain point and then all that matters is accuracy. Like if you throw... If you get the ball at second base quickly enough and it's accurate, then that's a good arm. But there are guys who pop, you know, close to 1.8 or whatever and can't... It's nowhere near the bag and so then it doesn't matter. Right. Um, so that's a thing that we... It's hard for us especially to evaluate something like that at scale. I think our arm strength grades generally on the board like suck mostly. Um, <laughs> like they're just diluted and close to 50 most of the time. Uh, but um, but yeah, I, if Evan Gaddis, Evan Gaddis, Henry Davis or Evan Gaddis defensively. Uh, like, Henry Davis. I mean, Gaddis was sub 40 back there. So, so even if Davis, let's say he's a first base slash DH five times a week and he catches once or twice a week, like, I'll take that. I'll take that. Um, I think that he's going to be okay enough back there. There may be some types of pitchers who don't like working with him. Pitcher comfort is, I think, an underrated piece of whether or not a guy can it's massive can catch. Um, so I think that that's going to be part of it but if you have a guy who doesn't work in the dirt you know who's, who doesn't have like a power pitchers in the dirt finishing breaking ball and it's like a you know lateral action change up guy who's living just around the zone and isn't the type of guy who's like Tyler Glass now and needs to spike a breaking ball every couple pitches uh, then I think this guy will be fine and even if he ends up first base DH I still think it's like an everyday sort of profile just because there's so much power and an approach that just leans into feel for contact and lets the strength derive most of the power. It's not like this guy swings like Cody Bellinger. Like it is a quiet, uh, reserved approach that just relies on huge, huge strength to, to generate the power. And I think it's really going to work. Yeah, I, it, I, I certainly feel like he's going to hit. It's just the, the it might just be as a... And I think he's athletic enough for to at least try him out and send him out in a corner outfield if you don't like the catching. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a huge, huge guy. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think, like, Kyle Schwarber. Yeah, I think he could play. I think he could play left field as good as Kyle Schwarber turned into. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, was, uh, I would grant him that pretty easily. I think he's more athletic than Schwarber for sure. Yeah. Um, this is something I was thinking about, and we, we kind of talked about this a little bit with the shorter draft and, and how this – you know, is uh, with the fewer minor league affiliates and how teams are going to handle that. And I think you make a really good point about just a lot of the arms are just going to get shut down. They're just going to say, we'll see you next year. Um, but, you know, teams now only have one short season team. They only have their complex team, right? And so there's used to just see all these draftees head over to, you know, the Appy League and the Pioneer League and the Northwest League and the New York Penn League. Those are gone. Um, and I've been... Thinking about, I don't have a good answer. I kind of wonder your thoughts here are like how teams are going to handle 
assignments for some of these players. Like I assume, you know, if you take any you know college kid in the first couple of rounds, you're going to be uh, even more so now. You're pretty comfortable sending him out to full season ball to to low A. Yeah. Um, where the quality of play is a little lower than it used to be, just because of, you know there are pe- more teams are kind of forcing guys who are not the same talent they used to be to low A to get them going. And so it's not. I think it seems we'll be fine with that, but um, normally a high school kid doesn't end up there. Like, are all of a sudden the complex league is going to be stacked? And then I wonder about like the kind of the domino effect of that, because you know for a long time complex leagues would have a couple of good high school players and be loaded with the Latin kids who just came over. Um, like, like, what are your thoughts overall on on, on kind of how this how we're going to see these players if if we see these players after the draft? Somewhat, I was talking about this with somebody earlier this week, and they think that the early high school picks might just go to low A right away. Like mm-hmm. the, the quality of play there right now is so fundamentally poor that it is playing like extended basically. Like it is a lot of guys who aren't playing mistake-free baseball. Um, some of that might be because of the layoff. And maybe some of these guys are going to round into a better baseball playing form. But talking to the pro scouts who have been around Arizona the last couple weeks, basically coming in and out doing pre-deadline work. Like someone texted me that there are eight scouts at the at the Giants complex game right now. Like guys are doing trade deadline work basically. Yeah, I talked to I talked to a good friend of mine the other day, and I said, "He said, I'll, I'll text you from the plant. Hold on, I'm getting on board." And I was like, "Where are you heading?" He's like, "Arizona." Yep. And then, so there's a lot of people down there and you would know, I'm sure you're going to games and are you seeing more heat than you normally see down there? Definitely more unfamiliar faces than mm-hmm. is typical. Uh, like the text I got today said, it's like nobody that this person recognized. So, um, so people so yeah. are coming in. It's not just the locals. I also think some of it are the dynamics of trading for players now is uh, more tailored to relieving and avoiding 40-man pressure, which means targeting a lot of younger players in some of the big blockbuster trades and getting a bunch of young, high upside players uh, rather than like one who's close to the big leagues. Uh, so I think that's part of it too. But but yeah, like there are certain players who if you ask me like where does – like Brady House physically just should go to low A. Right. Uh, and – even Marcelo Meyer, I think, like just send him to low. Yeah, I think a. any of those guys. I think Meyer, Lawler, Watson. I think all those guys would be fine in low. A. I think a lot of the outfielders that we've talked about, you know, as potential the high school kids, you know, potential first rounders. Um, like I think you know Benny Montgomery to low. A. I don't think it would be a disaster. Will Taylor, guys like that. I don't think you want the pitchers, the high school pitchers, to go. No. I think that you'd rather keep them on the complex where there is a little bit more roster flexibility. Uh, you're 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 primed in those pitching staffs to like kind of spread the workload around. Uh, so you know, rather than send a guy like Carson Williams or Andrew Painter to low A, where if he's at an affiliate and he's just having a, a, a terrible start, it's harder for you as a as a pitching staff to deal with the repercussions of that easily. Um, and there are definitely like Josh Baez, the high school hitter from the Northeast. Like he should not go to low A. He should go to rookie ball because there are questions about him hitting. Period. So I think it's going to depend on the players very specifically. Uh, but I do think that you'll – I would lean on some of the guys who would ordinarily come to the complex here in Arizona or, or in Florida, the high school guys. I think that they will be more likely to end up going to uh, 
to low A than than normal this year. Yeah, and, and people should know that that along with the the reconfiguring of the minor leagues, there has been teams have been given much greater flexibility of what they do at their complex in terms of of number of players and also how they kind of revolve them in and out. So you could kind of see a um, I think the best analogy might be like the Dominican Winter League, where you have you know sixty kids down there, and literally you pick the twenty five that are going to play today in the complex league game. Right, and and that's not to say like. If the Giants take Jordan Wicks, he'll probably throw once or twice here in the complex. Just like, you know, he comes in, he gets to see the facility yeah. so that he's not seeing it for the first time next spring. Everyone he does He gets this. a bunch of giant swag and like meet some of the, the strength and conditioning people who are going to be around the facility. Like there are lots of other things that go into this, but yeah, like. Yeah. And most teams do that. You send your first round pick to your stadium, to your, to your spring training facility to, to, um, do like their physicals if they're a first round pick probably happened at the stadium but like to, to do um a physical assessment um to get their strength and conditioning stuff going and like you said it's it's super important just to kind of get their stuff going like get them acclimated this is how we do things here you, these are all a bunch of people you're going to be dealing with for the next few years and you get to meet all of them and, and just understand like what the expectations are and things like that before you send them off to um some small town somewhere to play full season ball um, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk to our, our, our good friends in the draft world, Jim Callis, Keith Law, Carlos Colazzo, kind of Daniel. And then we'll come back and talk a little bit about how we expect things to go down. So stick around.
Welcome back to the podcast. It's time for our first special draft guest. He is uh, the first member of the Mock Draft Hall of Fame when he got the first 18 picks right in his 2005 mock. He was at Baseball America for nearly a quarter of a century and has spent nearly the last eight years as a senior writer for MLB Pipeline. He is someone I am happy to have been able to call a friend since years began with one and joining us from his luxurious accommodations in the northern suburbs of Chicago. It's Jim Callis. Jim, how are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for the kind intro. And I'm going to just real quick, we'll probably have to do a longer podcast at some point, but I want to tell everybody how we met when I moved to Chicago. <laughs> this is a great story. 1997, I left Baseball America. Families moving to Chicago, and I took a job at Stats, Inc., which at the time was, I think, just rapidly expanding, right, Kevin? And oh, yeah, it was crazy. Growing immensely. And I was part of the now-defunct publications team. We did all these cool books and magazines and, and things like that back then. And um, they had no place for me to sit. So they, they, they put me in this, this back room, like this, this kind of the size of a large walk-in closet, uh, with four programmers, only one of whom really spoke to me much at all. And that was, that was Kevin Goldstein, who was a huge baseball and prospect fan even then, and was delighted that he could ask me, a bunch of questions, and, and I was delighted that that one one of the four people in the room spoke to me. So um, that that's how we first met. Um, which God, I guess Kevin, that was almost twenty four years ago. It was, it was. It was, a, well, was among the most miserable six months of my life. You only worked at Stats for six months. Six months before I walked. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I, that I thought it. you had been there longer than that. So how? It was just six months. Wow. It was bad. Um, Probably because none of the other programmers talk to you. I, I think they did talk to you. but yeah, like, they, nope. everyone, everyone likes me. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Jim, uh, you know, what we're doing is we're having various draft experts on. Um, we, it, I got a bunch of questions from Twitter people, and you're going to get three quick questions. Were these pre-selected for me, or am I getting them randomly? They're getting them randomly. Okay. Okay. First question, it comes from, uh, I don't even know how to say it, XCS. And he asks... Will the sticky stuff crackdown change teams' thinkings going into the draft in both direction on certain hitters, maybe with contact questions, and change the valuation of pitchers who throw less impacted stuff like changes and sliders? I, I don't know if I feel like it really is going to change hitters. I mean, you know, if you look at the guy, like, like I mean, look, the guy with the first who's first round potential, who, who's got the biggest swing and miss questions is Judd Fabian. Right. I don't know that you're going to suddenly extrapolate that, oh, he's going to make enough contact, he'll be fine because there'll be less sticky stuff. Um, you know, do I think there's sticky stuff going on in college? Sure. You know, and they're not policing it like MLB is now. Um, I, you know, I don't know if it's his, you know, I, I don't know how many teams have hired chemists like, like big league organizations have. But, but like, so I don't, you know, I don't necessarily think it really moves the needle on any of the hitters. The pitchers, it would be interesting. I mean, you guys have probably heard the same thing. I mean, there's... I think, you know, a lot of, you know, several of the pitchers who are going to go in the first round, I've heard allegations that they're using sticky stuff. And, you know, I, I guess it's got to be in the back of your mind that, like, what would, I'm not going to name anybody by name, so-and-so look like if he lost a couple hundred RPMs off his off his pitches. Um, so that, that's kind of an interesting question. Like, if you're in love with, with some of these pitchers, and they have high spin rates, and you're wondering, like, ah, you know, maybe not be able to do the same things. That's interesting. But I, I, I will say, at least as I've encountered it so far, 
you know, as I'm trying to do mocks, I know you guys just did another mock. I haven't, I haven't heard of teams making any adjustments like, hey, we're downgrading pitcher X because we think he uses sticky stuff and, and it frightens us. Yeah, we haven't moved anyone either. And my thought on this in general has just been that if you take it away from everyone, it just evens the playing field with a different bar and the guys with really good stuff will still have really good stuff. It just won't be as good as it was with sticky stuff. It'll still be better than the other guys. Right. I mean, it may make it easier for the hitters as a whole versus the pitchers as a whole, but but I agree with that. The pitchers who stand out... I don't think out, it changes like the, the rank of the pitchers. If you right. Uh, yeah, they, I was going to say within the pitchers themselves, the pitchers who still have, you know, 90th percentile spin are still going to probably have 90th percentile spin in most cases. It just... Right. You know, everybody's spin rates will be down some. Our next question comes from Stu Ben H. And he says, what is the realistic upside of Jordan Lawler? It seems like solid skills across the board, but he's not an impact defender nor an impact bat. Why is the argument for being him for him being one of the top picks? Um, man, that, that seems like a little harsh to me on, on Jordan Lawler. I, I think, you know, we, we've got these, these four shortstops who are going to go in the first six, eight, ten picks with him and Marcelo Meyer and Khalil Watson and Brady House. And I think you could argue that he has the, the best all-around ceiling of any of them. I mean... I don't know about him not making an impact. I mean, I see a guy who, who's got plus speed and quickness and arm strength, so I, I don't think he's as polished a defender as, say, Marcelo Meyer, but I think he's he's a definite shortstop. And, you know, there, there was some swing and miss that was kind of baffling at the high school level early in the season. He cleaned that up a little bit, and I, I think he might be, you know, power over hit. You know, I, he gets compared a lot to Bobby Witt Jr., you know, because they're both from Dallas. Right. I think, you know, Witt had louder tools, but – but Lawler's kind of in the same mode. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I could see him being a – and I, I'm, not, I'm not even saying ceiling, but, like, let's say just how we kind of got him graded out as a, like, 260, 25 homer, 25 steal, solid defender at shortstop. That's a pretty impactful player. And I so think I, I disagree with the question. I think something working against him in a lot of models right now is his date of birth. Um, he's 19. <clears throat> Yeah, and it's like, I mean, we've taught, you and I have talked about this. I mean, that stuff drives me nuts. I mean, I get it. Well, I'll go on my brief diatribe here because because now you, you, you've, you've, you've poked. Diatribe poked away. It's a podcast. We talked about it. Yeah, no, but the whole age thing, I get it. And if everything were equal, yeah, I'd rather have the 18-year-old than the 19-year-old or 17-year-old than the 18-year-old. Um, I, I get that. But everything's not always equal, and you got to take the best player. And here's the thing. It, two points I'll make. One, if you draft Jordan Lawler, he's going to be in low A ball next year. He's going to be young for low A at age 20. So, like, whatever. I, I don't care. The same teams that don't want him <laughs> as a 19-year-old, you know, he's always too old. If he goes to Vanderbilt and he's a 21-year-old draft-eligible sophomore in two years, they're going to be like, oh, that's fine. It's okay now. He's 21. Like, like none of that makes any sense to me. But, but uh, the, the, my, my, my big diatribe is, you both have probably heard this at some point, the whole age thing stems from the fact, I'm going to blame this on Mike Trout. Any draft study you do that Mike Trout winds up in one bucket versus the other, that bucket's going to look like it's the best bucket that you want to draft from. Because Mike Trout is so ridiculously good that he's basically the equivalent of, of, of not just like a great first-round pick, but of like six or ten great first-round picks all rolled into one. Like it, he just breaks the scale. You know, and Mike Trout, yes, when he was drafted, was, was not quite 18. You know, he was seasonal age, um, I guess seasonal age 17, right, if he was born in August 1991. And, and so if you do your draft studies and you're putting guys into age brackets – 
you know, Mike Trout comes out is, you know, like, hey, you want 17-year-olds. And this is oversimplified, but I use the example that if you were doing a – you'd be crazy to draft this way. But if you were doing a demographic breakdown, we're going to break it down by state, high school, college, hitter, pitcher. Going into 2009, there was a long track record of New Jersey high school players like Billy Roll and Eric Duncan. Jack Cust had a big league career. But of, of, of high draft picks, hitters out of New Jersey – high school guys not performing up to expectations. And so if you were doing a study then, you'd be like, oh, man, like New Jersey high school hitters, those guys just don't pan out. And now if you were to do that study, and again, that would be a very simplistic study, you'd find that the best the, the best demographic by far in the draft, even if you wait for where the guys are drafted, is to take New Jersey high school position players. Like Mike Trout breaks the scale, but there are there are good 19-year-old draftees out of high school all the time, um, it, it's it's just ridiculous to, to not to you know to just wipe them all out. Um, it, it just makes no sense to me. But you know, there just isn't enough talent in a draft to start eliminating demographics because then you're going to eliminate your potential for finding good players. There's my diatribe. Diatribe over. Your final question comes from Rocky. Your socks three two one. And he says, there's talk about Leiter trying to force his way to Boston at four by floating huge dollar amounts to other teams. How seriously do other teams take that kind of posturing, giving his limited leverage? Should teams just ignore it? Or does this create an antagonistic dynamic, even if he signs? No, it's I think all that makes for great reading. But like, I mean, you've been involved with this stuff, Kevin. I mean, you know, when you were the Astro, I mean, realistically, it's what I call a guy like Jack Leiter is what I call a prisoner of his own talent. <laughs> he 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 does no, seriously though he's so talented that Jack I mean I've heard the same Red Sox rumors you guys have heard too and let's say I'm just making up a number but let's say Jack Leiter's telling people I've got to have ten million dollars or I'm not signed I'll go back to Vanderbilt I'm, that's I'm, the number I'm, I was going to give you okay I'm, I'm a COVID freshman I I've got three years eligibility left I'll go back um, like don't test me I will um, and he tells you that. You know, like, like I think I think you guys in your last mock have what I had in my last mock, which was the Rangers taking Jack Leiter at two, and and he could tell the Rangers, oh no, ten million, I'm telling you, don't take me ten million, and if the Rangers, if I want Jack Leiter and I think he's the best guy, I'm just gonna take him, and their slot I think is like seven seven or seven eight, whatever it is, you know maybe you maybe they don't even offer slot, but if they offer him seven million dollars, Jack Leiter's gonna turn that down and go back to Vanderbilt. And pitch another 110, 120 innings next year. And, and look, I, I think Jack Leiter is the best pitcher in the draft. And I would take him number two behind Meyer. But Jack Leiter, like, slumped for three weeks in midseason and took a week off. It wasn't like Jack Leiter dominated from start to finish. It's, you know, what happened, you know, he's not the most physical guy. So he's taken on a lot of risks. So I, I you know, I, I think that stuff, you know, looks great and, and fans can dream. And he might very well get to the Red Sox just on merit. But I, I think if, if, if I don't think Pittsburgh's taking a pitcher, but if, if Pittsburgh or Texas or Detroit wants him, Jack can tell him whatever he wants, and he they're, they're still going to take him. It's funny. I was looking back at 2011 for some reason, and I totally forgot, but I think at one point Dylan Bundy was floating the idea of a $30 million uh, major league contract. <laughs> major league deal, right. Yeah, that, that was thrown out there. Just this absurd number that was a very interesting strategy because it was so absurd that I don't think anybody – could even possibly take it seriously, but that was that was the number for a while. I don't I don't know what the strategy was, 
but but like I said, you know, Jack's just too good. He's a prisoner of his own talent, and yeah, you know, I think even though he's sliding a little bit, you know, or not sliding, but he's going to go six to ten. I think Kumar Rocker's kind of the same thing. Like, you know, Kumar can, you know, his camp can throw out, hey, he's the most famous guy, and he should have gone higher, and he wants, you know, he wants what Jack Leiter is getting, whatever. You know, I mean, we all saw Kumar led the nation in innings this year. He was great mm-hmm. as a freshman. He doesn't. I mean, what's he going to go back and improve his stock next year? And it, when he has less leverage, no. Like somebody's going to take Kumar, even if it's at seven or nine or whatever, and he's going to have to sign. Do you think there's any difference here? Just because I, I guess the case for both, and the fact that um, they certainly don't need the money, and then their parents are ex-professional athletes who are very involved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean. <laughs> Yes and no. <laughs> I mean, if your goal is to play professional baseball, which it clearly is for both those guys, right? You've you've gotten the co- like I understand. Like I'm a big proponent of the college experience. Both those guys turned down big money out of high school, and they're going to probably double it this year. Um, and again, good, good for them. But at the same, at some point, if you want to go play, if your goal is to be a major leaguer and a successful major leaguer, you need to get on with your career. And I would say. I don't think either of those guys has anything left to prove. I, I don't see any way Jack Leiter's stock could really be any higher a year from now. I mean, maybe if he was great without, like, the four-week lull in the middle of the season. But, like, we've got him ranked. I, don't, I haven't looked at you, but we haven't ranked as number two prospect in the draft. What's he going to be number one next year? Like, like, I mean, it's hard to do better than that. And, you know, maybe Kumar, you know, we've got him fifth or sixth. Maybe Kumar ranks a little bit higher next year. But, I mean, we're talking – you know, it's going to be a lot easier to fall than it is to, to be higher. So I, I don't, even though neither of those, those guys needs the money, you, you want to be a big leaguer. It's time to get on and, and become a big leaguer. And, and again, if you're thinking long-term for your career, you really want to start, you, you really want to get drafted at 22, have service, you know, who knows what happened to the CBA, but have service time games played with you. Um, and then you get to the big leagues when you're 23 and you're a free agent when you're 29 or 30. Good luck. You know, good luck as a pitcher staying healthy till you're 30. You know, when you hit free agency. <laughs> and your, your final question comes from me. I'm asking this for everybody. Give me one name with the best chance to be a surprise top 10 pick. Oh, surprise top 10. Okay. Top 10. Top one guy who could surprise. <sighs> well, I mean, it would be somebody who's cutting a deal. Like, is it going to surprise me and you, or is it going to surprise fans? Yeah, fans, people watching the draft. Okay, I, then, I, then I will say Colson Montgomery could go in the top ten. Like, like I think that would be like, like I feel like if he doesn't go ten, he's more likely to go like twenty, twenty one, twenty two. Um, so I will say Colson Montgomery. I mean, I'm sure you you could probably come up with a. You know, I mean, look, we've all heard, hey, Baltimore could do any kind of deal. Like, you know, crazy guys for, you know, for Baltimore, you know, maybe at five if they do a super deep discount. But but I'll go Colson Montgomery. Who, who would you say? What's your answer to that? Uh, my my answer is Hogland. Yeah, I don't, I don't even, like, I don't, yeah. I mean, he could be. I, I it just, I, I don't know how much of a surprise. It's, like, I think he goes in the same area, too. Like, I, I actually think if he doesn't, I think he, I, I think he probably goes... 16 to 20 and maybe even a little higher than that. Yeah, I think yeah. we we both think he goes close like to 15. I yeah. would take him I would take him somewhere between 10 to 15 just on talent. Like the, we've seen this before with the guys who come who are coming back from TJ, it's just an opportunity to like rework their body and their delivery. 
Uh, and he's polished, so it's not yeah. like he had a lot of stuff he had to work. And I, I'm with that too. And you know, it's funny, Eric, because I keep. I'm. I'm not saying he's this guy, but his situation reminds me so much of Walker Bueller, where Bueller was a guy mm-hmm. who had good stuff, not great stuff, and was really polished and had a lot of success in the SEC. And then he got hurt, and he had TJ, and he attacked his rehab. And, you know, Eric, you're there in Arizona, so you probably heard about it before anybody. But all of a sudden you're hearing like, hey, Walker Bueller's touching 100, and he's throwing 91-mile-an-hour sliders, and and he still has his feel for pitching. So I'm not saying that's what's going to happen with Hoagland, but I could see the parallels. So I think he's going to go pretty good. I'll, I'll ask you guys a question. Okay. What potential – it doesn't have to be a guy you have in your top 10, but what potential top 10 pick – do you feel could fall the farthest? Oh, now I'm going to think. I think just offhand, it would have to be Jackson Job. I mean, he might go as high as three, but you get in that room and then high school pitching just tends to fall. Um, and then the guy, who, uh, I, I do think there's a scenario where Lawler moves from like being in the top five of all the mocks to like, okay, well, Arizona is deciding between him and Watson and Rocker at six and they just go a different direction. And then like, I don't know who behind pick six was like prepared for Jordan Lawler to be on the board. And, and I don't think that it, it makes him fall like an extreme amount. Um, he does have a Vanderbilt commitment, but it, I don't, you know, it doesn't sound like this is like a $5 million price tag that's out there or anything like that. Um, so that there's a point where like he becomes unsignable. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, those would be the two names. I'm going to go with Kumar Rocker. I think there are scenarios where Kumar Rocker is still there at 10. That's not falling out of the top 10. So, so I mean, but then if the Mets then pass, then he's out of the top 10. not use the ingredient in the back basket. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, now that's interesting. And I was going to say with Lawler, I do kind of feel like, like I, you know, because we don't really know what Baltimore is going to do at five. They can go in a bunch of different right. directions. And I think there are scenarios where Lawler could go three or four, or, or there's scenarios, like you say, like he might be on the board at seven and eight. And I think, I mean, I think it's a very small chance, but I agree that there, there could be a point, and I don't know what his number is, where he's like, I'm not signing for slot or, or whatever, or this is my number, and if I don't get it, I'll go to Vanderbilt and come out the draft in two years. Right. And, and you know, when, when, hey, my bonus money won't be deferred like it is this year and the slots will be higher yeah. and, and, and take my chances. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I think those make sense. I was going to say, he's not as high as other guys, but a guy who I think is like a borderline guy kind of in that 8 to 10 range. Like Ty Madden, like I keep hearing, and I don't necessarily know why, like, like teams in the late teens are beginning to think that he might get to them for some reason. Yeah, I know Eric said he had some teams asking if they think he'll be around. I think a, another guy who's he's been more mentioned in the early teens than the than end of the first ten. Who I could it wouldn't shock me if he ended up in the twenties is Sal Freelick. Yeah, although I think the college bats are so short this year. Yeah, that he probably goes sixteen to twenty. But but I agree. Like I, I think I mean he, we have him. I think at like thirteen in our current mock or twelve or thirteen. But yeah, yeah, twelve. Your so. ringtone is is that outfield song, Jim? I, I still am using the outfield. <laughs> Me and Gordon Beckham, all the Georgia guys are using your love apparently as as their ringtone. <laughs> well, Jim, it's it's uh, you know we're recording most of these on Thursday, recording this for you on Wednesday because you're traveling tomorrow. Where will you be, and what are you doing on draft day? I will, crazily enough, not be going to the Futures game. Um, I, I I just can't do both. But you um, will be in Denver. I don't know. I will be in Denver. I just will be at, you know, I will be at the 
is it the Belco Theater? I, I should know the name of the theater, although I guess I don't have to say it on TV. I think it's the Belco Theater there in Denver where the draft will be. And I will get there early and be trying to figure out who's going where on Sunday while watching the Futures game on TV rather than trying to scramble from Course Field to the theater after the game. Yeah, because I think the way that I think the, the, the Futures game is going to end like maybe an hour before the draft preview show. Oh, good lord! Um, so I was just like, it's too much. Like, I, I, and if I'm at the futures game, I'm going to be watching the players, and not paying attention to the draft or vice versa. So I will just remove myself. I will be at the Belco Theater early, watching the futures game on TV, and, and trying to figure out who goes where. H- how about you guys? How are you and, spending your? And you'll Sunday? be on, you'll be on the network. I will be on the network Sunday, Monday, and I guess Tuesday, but only a little bit because they don't they don't go pick by pick on Tuesday. What suit are you wearing? Well, I only have two. I, I don't have the need for many suits. So I only have two suits. Well, somebody really wants to talk to me. Yeah. Um, I only have two suits, so I will be wearing the, the gray suit is the, the A-team. That, that, that will get the Sunday broadcast. And the blue suit uh, will get the, the Tuesday broadcast for – I mean, I'm sorry, the Monday broadcast for rounds 2 through 10. What tie are you going with with the gray suit? I have not. I have not figured out my shirt-suit combinations. MLB Network just sent me – a, a nice shirt and a couple of ties. So I, I, that's something I have to consider tonight as I pack. <laughs> so I, I cannot give you more of a preview. But gray suit, Sunday. Blue suit, Monday. So if you want to, I mean, you should be at Fangraph chatting with us during the draft. But you can do that and also watch Jim Callis on MLB Network uh, wearing a gray suit. If you want to follow him on Twitter, which is the smart thing to do. He is at Jim Callis MLB. Jim, you have anything else you want to plug? No, just, you know, come to MLB.com and MLB Pipeline to see all our coverage. And, you know, you, you plugged my Twitter handle. And, you know, the great thing is all of our content's free. None of it's behind a paywall. So we will be cranking out <laughs> a ton of it between now and then. Um, so, so come check it out. And uh, it was weird. I thought you were telling me that I should be chatting with Fangraphs no, no, on I, the draft no, at first. I, <laughs> I was like, where's Kevin going with this? Like, he's uh, You he, should come chat with us. Well, yeah, during, well, during the broadcast. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I dictate a story with analysis pick by pick while the broadcast is going on so so sure i could chat with you guys at the same time i'm doing that also why not <laughs> jim have a good time in denver and thanks for coming on no that no, was great we will have to do this again sometime i'm glad i, I told our origin story and uh, hope to run into you guys i want to meet the stats inc people who were too nerdy to talk to either well, they weren't guys. nerdy it's just no, it's no they were both great yeah well hello. It, it was hello it was, to stefan drew and brent if you're listening i cannot remember drew's name and, and i got to know stefan and brent and i think i think drew left drew left pretty quick quickly Steph- and Stephen. I got to know Stefan and Brent, but originally, initially, the only person who spoke to me in that room was Kevin. So I don't know where Stefan is right now, but I think he's doing some sort of programming for some sort of sports thing. Um, and Brent still does programming, but out of sports. Gotcha. Um, was he? Maybe for a little bit. Let's just talk about the, the, our, our six months together at Stats in 1997. We'll do a special edition <laughs> of the podcast. There, there we go. Like a three-hour <laughs> podcast. <laughs> they all are that long anyway. Thanks for coming on, Jim. Yeah, great talking to you guys. Take care. See ya. See ya. Welcome back. We continue our draft special guest with a, a man who, just a legend in 
well, at least I'm sure he thinks he's a legend, but <laughs> one of the founders of Baseball Prospectus. He was a special assistant. That's a fun title, isn't it? With the Toronto Blue Jays for mm-hmm. four years. Extremely uh, special assistant. Very special. I try to assist in a special way. Uh, he was at ESPN for 14. It has been at the, this tiny little upstart with limited resources called The Athletic for the last nearly two years. Uh, he went to Harvard and Carnegie Mellon and is now wasting his time in baseball, joining <laughs> us from his luxurious accommodations in Wilmington, Delaware. It's Keith Law. Keith, how are you, man? I'm, I'm good. How about you? I'm good. You busy these days? No, not at all. No, absolutely <laughs> nothing going on in my work, my personal life. No, absolutely nothing. Things are totally fine. I haven't slept in a month. <laughs> That's normal for you. Keith was named in the uh, the Trump uh, big tech lawsuit. Oh my God. <laughs> I was dealing with that. Yeah. Yes. So when you're not stifling freedom of speech, you are uh, obviously covering the draft for The Athletic. Um, we have three questions for you. Are you ready? Fire away. First question comes from Ty Esler, and Ty says, will the recent NIL decision, as in name, image, and likeness for college players, give high school players more leverage if they think they can make some money from their likeness while in college? I... I this is a tough question because I don't, I think like baseball is still obviously not a major college sport. I think it's hard to make a ton of money from that in baseball. But for some of these two sports stars, especially ones with football opportunities at big schools, do you think this will play into negotiations and asks and things like that? I love this question um, because it came up a bit with Will Taylor, who's one of the two sport prospects in this year's draft. And did his value and possible price tag, and I think he's going to sign. I think you guys have said or heard the same thing. Um, but is he worth more now? Because he could potentially go to Clemson and play football and then make money off his likeness that way. So did the two sports guys just get a lot more valuable? Whereas most of the baseball guys, unless you're like a Kumar Rocker who's famous out of high school and then going to a major, major baseball program, there's probably just only a handful of those baseball guys who'll see the benefit but i would bet two sport guys could yeah do you think kumar rocker could make that much money off his name image likeness as a ace at vanderbilt i I don't think it's a ton that i don't think it's enough to move a needle no i think if he could have i i don't think money was the factor for him but if someone had said to him out of high school here's two million dollars and if money were a deciding factor do i think he could have made up for that with three years at vanderbilt or made enough in three years at vanderbilt off his likeness to balance that out? No, I don't think so. Yeah. But I think he would have made something. Right? Have, he could say, yeah. I'm happy to do that for three years and and bank on getting more than $2 million as a college junior, which in his case, I think, is, is clearly going to work out. And, Just and looking at the, the, sorry, the top names like from the last couple of years where it's like Torkelson and, and Rocker and stuff. I, I, yeah, like maybe, maybe one guy every year makes like... Yeah enough money nationally could dylan cruz do some sort of like crawfish commercial locally no like (laughs) yeah for sure maybe but uh and maybe that's worth it but like yeah not in a way that i think is gonna dictate whether you take two million dollars or don't i'm picturing like sal freelick at boston college like you know you're gonna shop at star 24 you can get all your needs right everything you need right there just go down to the packy the Sal Freelick lobster roll available this weekend. Absolutely. Um, at D'Angelo's. But I think about like uh, like Bubba Chandler, who's got an opportunity to be a quarterback at Clemson. Clemson's a massive program. Quarterback's mm-hmm. the, the, the the spotlight position. If that works out, I mean, he can make some cash. Absolutely. Now, I just wonder, also, it's so much of it is about perception, right? If you're the agent for a player like that, if you got a two-sport prospect, 
you could say, well, my guy needs more money because obviously he can go to Clemson. He can go to, you know, State University and he's going to be the quarterback and he's going to start from day one. Of course, he's probably not going to start from day one. A lot of these guys aren't going to stay a quarterback when they get to college anyway, but it just becomes an argument for more leverage. And does do you get does Will Taylor get a half a million dollars more now because he says, look, he could just make this his agent says he could make that much money off his likeness right. once he goes to Clemson. I don't know. I, I it came up the other day when I was talking to people about Taylor specifically, and I thought, you know, that's one guy. He and Bubba Chandler were the two that came to mind. It could actually move the needle for them financially. That's probably a lot less true for baseball players. I think Eric's right. It might be one guy a year. Maybe it's yeah. zero some years. Yeah. All right, next question comes from Derek. And Derek says this isn't so much of a question as much as a gripe with Major League Baseball having the Futures game and the draft on the same day. <laughs> For me, they are two of my favorite events on the baseball calendar. And with the hype that MLB places on young players, I would think they would do a better job of making these more showcase events. What are your suggestions for improving the timing of the draft and futures games next year and in the future? Or do you like this format? I do not like this format. Can we just make that absolutely clear? Derek, right now? nobody likes this format. Nobody. And I mean, None of us like this. And, and, nobody, and teams hate it too. Teams hate it too, right? I have not yet spoken to a single person outside of the commissioner's office people, but it's pe- people with teams or agents who like this format. At the absolute the the most trivial complaints is it's just a physical hassle for a lot of us because we're trying to do things with both games i'm going to be at the futures game and then i'm gonna maybe have a quick time to go to the hotel and like you know wash the futures game off of me and then the draft starts so but also it is a it's seems like one of the worst ways to try to get more eyeballs on both events the whole idea is you should be trying to get people to watch both events Make the Futures game at night. The Futures game should be the Sunday night event. Right. And then you could do the draft. If you want to do the draft this late, you could do it the Wednesday of All-Star Week. But also the draft doesn't have to be this late. And I think most teams have found it to be a huge headache because they're already supposed to be starting next year. Uh, sorry, starting to scout next year's guys. Right. The, things- the, the college and showcase season's already started. For There's already years. started. And I can't – people ask me, are you going to see Team USA down in North Carolina? And you know what the truth is? I hadn't even thought about it because I can't do that. I can't think about next year's draft. I do not have the mental bandwidth to think about next year's draft when we are, you know, now we're like three days away from this year's draft, but even two weeks away. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm all in on this year's draft. I mean, I went to a minor league game last week, two minor league games. And even at that, I was like, well, I'm really pushing it there. I got it. (laughs) I, I, I really don't know why. You know, I understand like they want to make it an event and have all the focus on the draft and this is the time to do it. But there's absolutely no reason you can't have a Monday in mid-June where mm-hmm. you just give everyone all 30 teams a day off and do the draft. Yes, which I think was that has been discussed for years. The idea of making this a just there are no night games on that Monday and we do, and you hold the draft. The draft is the signature event. Yeah, And that makes way more sense from an audience perspective. And the teams would like that, too. Right, because I, I can think of several. And I, you, you've been in draft rooms, too, Keith. I can think of several draft nights where we were drafting, but you know, one of the forty-three screens in the room had the game had the Astros game on. Right, of you course, know, it, was, it was bizarre. Yeah, I remember walking from. We'd be in the draft, and we, you know, we were in the stadium, and mm. so I could walk across the hall to the booth where we would watch the games too. And it was like, all right, we're not going to pick for another twenty minutes. Let me go watch an inning, which, you know, then you're not really paying full attention to either of your tasks. Right. 
Our final question comes from Otto Jeff. And Otto says, does the recent success of Bobby Witt Jr. or the lackluster performances of Singer, Lynch, and Coar potentially sway the Royals at seven if they're presented a decision between a college arm or one of the co- or one of the high school shortstops remaining? Um, I'm going to say no. I would love to hear what you guys think about that. Because I think in their minds, especially, Bobby Witt Jr. was an extreme outlier. He was a really, in, in the best, in a good way, right? He yeah. was an extremely talented tooled up player who we'd known forever um and who had the baseball bloodlines and a super high baseball iq you know the biggest knocks on him were he was 19 at the draft which you know matters at, on draft day but once the guys had success in pro he's having success in double a it doesn't matter anymore and there were some questions about the swing and how much swing and miss there was going to be but again right now that's not really an issue um but i think they also just view him as in in his own category picking seventh in this year's draft I don't know that that player exists in this year's draft at all, but he's he's certainly not going to be there at seven. Well, they could be staring at Kumar Rocker. Right. And that's, you know, there is an argument that he's the best college pitcher in the draft class. I, like, I think a pretty, I, I don't personally have them ranked that way, but I think you can make a pretty cogent argument that he is. And I would be, I'm, I'm actually fascinated to see if that happens, do they pass on him and take, you know, the player they probably ordinarily thought they were going to take? Or do they say, Nope, this guy can get there really quick for us and line up with all these other college pitchers. By the way, I think those guys who have all had rough starts in the majors, they're all pretty much going to be fine. I'm not worried about those guys long term. Right. going to have some of those guys are going to work out just fine. And and I think you know, I, I think Singer and and Coar and and are you know probably four or five starters at the end of the day. But based on the way they were picked, if those guys are solid four or five starters, those are successful picks. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they, 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 I just think they'll take the player they like the best. I don't think it'll move too much. What do you think, yeah. Eric? Yeah, I, in some ways, re- like, reject the the premise of the question, too. Just, like, I don't think that the guys who were talking about college arm-wise are busts uh, right. by any stretch. Right. And, like, would it surprise any of us if Bobby Witt, when he first came up, was bad for a while? Just, like, these guys have been, like, no. So, um, Royals fans should be intimately familiar with the – pitching attrition rates because the last amazing farm system they had although of all those pitchers some of whom are still like in the big leagues or in pro ball like not all of them worked out right like there was there was a lot of attrition so uh, i think that's a pretty natural thing i think that uh, you can make an argument that you just wa- that you want the college arm for that reason uh just because like so many of them are going to fall by the wayside at some point um it's a position where you need depth you need you need a lot of pitching everybody needs there's too much good pitching but not but every team needs more pitching like it is starving for it all the time even if they actually have enough if there were such a thing you could say objectively i measure them as having enough pitching nobody ever feels like they have enough pitching i mean kevin you've been you were just in a front office like was there ever a point where you said no we have enough pitching we're good we don't need any more pitching we're good never did but there's also kind of the sense that we we kind of grow pitching on trees like we did a good job drafting and international Mm -hmm. pitching using um, a lot of data and things like that so we felt more comfortable trading away pitching but yeah you never you always knew that like as excited as you were about these 12 guys like two or three were gonna work out yes it i remember plenty of times in the draft rooms with the blue jays where it was especially it was we don't have any lefties we got to take a lefty here suddenly we need a lefty and you just start to you know i wanted to say if you were outside this room and just watching and listening to this conversation you'd think these people were crazy Right. It yeah. should just, you know, that rationality goes a little bit out the window, especially if you're 
you know, trying to make game time decisions in the draft. Wait, Kumar Rocker's getting to our pick. We didn't think he was going to get to our pick. What do we do? It's Kumar Rock. This is why you plan. This is why teams have five to as much as 10 days worth of meetings leading up to the draft. So you don't end up in hopefully. That world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I've, I've actually always hated that there. Like, why do you want another lefty? Most hitters are righty. Why are you going to give mm-hmm. more hitters than not the platoon advantage? Yes. Oh, no, but it became an yeah, obsession. I'm yeah, not we, picking we, on anyone in particular. No, no, yeah, we don't, yeah, I, I, we've all heard it. Like, yeah, we need another left. We, yep. we don't have enough lefties. Like, really? It's like when the college catchers start flying off the board and you look and suddenly in, within a span of 20 picks, it seems like they're all gone. Yeah, you got to go get Jake Rogers. Yeah. Right, yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Um, Keith, there's the question that we're asking all of our draft guests. Give us one name that could be a surprise slide into the top 10 picks. Um, I mentioned Will Taylor, so I just will you know set him aside um i've also heard benny montgomery sliding mm. into the top 10 and i get it um with the rockies in particular and i will say just having seen montgomery lives not uh, plays not far from where i live so like i see it i mean that absolutely looks out. like yep he looks like their kind of player he looks great in the uniform they're willing to ride a little bit with you know, a guy who's got some questions maybe on the hit tool if he checks all their other boxes i think it would be a discount if that were were to happen sure um, and that's one i just haven't heard a lot until the last couple of days so just trying to think of something you guys might not have also heard or said before that's probably the most surprising one i've heard we could have two montgomery's go in the top 10 conceivably which would be pretty surprising that would be very surprising yeah what are your plans for draft day um i'll be in denver because i'm going to the futures game um, I think I'm going to go over to the draft at the convention center, but if that's not going to work out or if I have to do something else for the athletic, I'll just hang out in the hotel room probably. And then um, the next day I'm doing a book signing at uh, Tattered Cover at noon, um, which is a great independent bookstore right across the street from the stadium. And it looks like they have pretty much have in-store events lined up like every day, all day. They're just oh, nice. like, it's like a factory where they're just, Eric, you're doing one right on Saturday. Uh, Yeah. So they're just going to like cycle us through there. And I'm a big fan of independent bookstores, so I'm more than happy to do an event for them while I'm there. Fantastic. Well, Keith, we want to thank you for joining us. Have a lovely time in Denver. Thank you. uh, Do you have anything else you want to plug? Um, Yeah, I wrote a book called The Inside Game. But you probably already know that if you're listening to this. Go buy Keith's book, The Inside Game. If you want to follow Keith on Twitter. I I don't have your Twitter address in front of me. What do they do? Where do they go? Uh, to buy my book? No, to follow you on Twitter. At Keith Law. It is just Keith Law. K-E-I-T-H-L-A-W. It is now a picture of my book. It is no longer a picture of pie. For a long time, it was just a picture of pie. Because I always argued, nobody needs to see my face. Yeah. They know what I look like. <laughs> right? It's not that exciting. So follow Keith on Twitter. Read. Buy Keith's book. Read his stuff at The Athletic. If you, uh, As we always say, at some point over the next 72 hours, there will be a half-price offer. Um, just wait for it. It'll come. And Keith, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And welcome back. Our draft guests continue uh, with a man who, uh, like all people who work at Baseball America, is a graduate of the University of North Carolina. I believe it is a prerequisite. He was an associate reporter for MLB.com for both the Braves and the Padres and has been with Baseball America for about four and a half years and is the main dude for them on the draft and joining us from his luxurious accommodations in Norfolk, Virginia. It's Carlos Colazzo. Carlos, how are you? 
I am great. A little bit tired, uh, but excited for the draft to get rolling. And, and I think you nailed it. You, you basically have to go to UNC to work at BA. I think it's a prerequisite. Yeah, it is a <laughs> little bit of a pipeline there. I was there for a few years, and it was there always a problem. Um, <laughs> so, Carlos, we're doing what we do with everybody. We have three questions from Twitter for you. It's a quick hit, and then we have one question we're asking everybody. Are you ready to go? Yeah, I think so. Hopefully. Our first question comes from Rickinator555 <laughs> because Twitter names are great. And Rickinator asks, with a lot of teams losing affiliates, is this a draft where teams could lean towards taking an organizational need early more so than usual? Uh, interesting. Um, we, we've talked about this a lot, actually, with, with how minor league reshuffling is going to change what kind of player teams want to take. My initial thought was that teams maybe would be more inclined to continue going after college players just because some of the lower level minor league teams getting lost. Maybe you feel more comfortable with the college player getting into the system. Um, hmm. But I think for this year, it's tough to to really say because there's going to be such a logjam of players after last year's draft and after not seeing a lot of a lot of your organizational players and maybe not feeling good about cutting them or, or continuing to let them play for you. I, I guess this year, maybe more than any other year, you're going to have a logjam of players. So I don't know that especially early on, I would expect teams to target organizational needs any more than normal. I just don't think that's the strategy teams should go for generally. And I don't know why having fewer teams would incentivize that further, I guess. So I guess I'll say I don't, I don't think so, but I, I don't really know what the thinking would be. Yeah, I don't think so either. I mean, it, it, it doesn't happen as much as you think. Like at times... Yeah, I remember from my experience, like, you know, you'd be in the 30s or something and go, oh, yeah. shit, we need an infielder at Tri-City, you know, and let's find somebody. But I can't imagine that happening before the 20s, and which, yeah. is all we, which is all we have now. This year, yeah, I think, like, like you, you nailed it, and you would know better than me for that. But this year, I feel like the problem is more going to be, like, we have too many players. Like, are we going to be able to yeah. get guys innings and time more than anything? Yeah, and we we obviously saw a lot of releases um, in the off season and in spring with the smaller minor leagues, but it didn't feel like the number of releases really matched up with how limited teams are in terms of roster spots. Mm-hmm. I think we're gonna have some college arms get picked and then just be immediately shut down, especially coming off of a workload increase from 2020 yep. to 2021. Oh, that's a really good point. So those guys are not necessarily going to occupy roster spots, but I do agree that it's going to be team specific. Like I've got the Cubs on the brain, right? So the Cubs have all these Latin American shortstops, Kevin Mata, Jason Santana, Ed Howard. Well, Ed Howard's not Latin American, but like they have all these teenage shortstops in the system, Preciado. Like it would be hard for me to see them – taking a high school shortstop at some point during this draft because there's just no room on the complex level or at Myrtle Beach right now to, like, stick another guy. Uh, so I do think, yeah, like, I hadn't thought about it. It's a good question, but I do think that it will be more impactful this year uh, than a typical year, like what's already going on in your farm system dictating who you draft. That's interesting. That's, like, kind of leaning towards organiz- the opposite of organizational need, towards, mm-hmm. towards not, not organizational need. We don't, we don't need Clog. more of these. Yeah. Uh, our next question for you, Carlos, comes from As in Rec, and he says, "Where in the draft, and how will the draft be most affected from the past year's five year five round draft?" Uh, yeah, I think depth. I mean, I know that a lot of people kind of critique this draft at the top. It's not necessarily the the elite talents up top, especially with college bats that teams want to see, but. I, we really like the depth of this class. We do a VA 500 every year, and I think there are a lot of really good players 
that were draft eligible last year who are back, some players who have progressed in many ways and some players who have maybe gone the opposite direction. But I think, I mean, we polled MLB scouting departments prior to the year and we had a couple teams who thought on depth this was a 70 or even an 80 grade class if you're just talking about the depth of the class. And, and I really don't know how you would find a better um, a better year for depth when you have just five rounds a year prior for a 2020 class that, that scouts already seem to think the depth of that group was pretty strong in its own right. So I think this year, uh, that's probably what I'd point to. Just the depth of the class is, is really strong in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think day one will be like a fairly normal day one, but I think day two is going to be filled with a lot of really good players. Yeah, I feel like like the combination of the increased depth, how we see it, and then teams having less consensus maybe than ever because of some of the evaluation periods you didn't get, I feel like teams are going to really all come away liking their 3-10 to 10 round guys a lot yeah. more than they normally would. That's kind of been my, my thinking. If we had to th- pick like, all right, so if you're going to take an extreme strategy to try to acquire as much of the depth as possible, how would we go about doing it while you guys think about that like so craig edwards before he left to work for the players association uh wrote an article an update on how to value draft picks and this is before covid so um you know basically what craig found is and for mapping some of these values to like the future values on the board basically uh craig found you know the value of picks between rounds five and seven to be about 2.5 million per pick that's like a high 40 or like a 40 plus basically on the, on the board um, rounds eight through 10, like 1.5 million, which is, which is about a 40. Uh, basically Craig's research was an indication that like we weren't, um, we were underestimating draft prospects, typically like guys mm-hmm. who go through round four end up on the board immediately. And, and that's sort of it, uh, but it really should be, you know, through rounds seven at least, and maybe trickling closer to round 10. And now there are twice, twice the amount of those guys available in this year's draft. So uh, you're talking about, you know, like another basically 10 rounds of guys who are arguably board worthy. Um, but yeah, if we were, if we were really going to go nuts, like do you take Matt Mikulski in the first round and cut a deal and then just have like, if you're the reds and your farm system isn't deep and you have all these picks, are you like, what is the extreme manner through which you would, try to acquire as much of the depth as possible. I mean, I've heard teams in the last couple of years talk about, um, it's interesting, both strategies in the sense of kind of doing, um, let's call it what the Mets did the one year where they took Allen and, and, and then, you know, and then, uh, the, and then the, punted. Um, right, they cut with the senior SEC bats. Right. Yeah, that started so, like the fourth round for them that year, right? Yeah. Right. So take like one or two, like if you can get it, it's, it's tough to get to work, but take one or one, two or three massive names and then punt the rest mm-hmm. of your 10. And the other theory is like literally go, you know, 400, 500,000 plus on all your picks mm-hmm. um, and find a way to do that. And I think someone's going to pull, try to pull that off. I don't know if this year, but at some point in the next, I don't know, one, two, four years, someone's going to try to pull that off. I'd like to see it happen. I mean, it, just any variety in how you, kind of work your draft board i think it's just fun to see and see yeah. if it pays off but but i think you're right the reds are interesting to me because they pick 17 but they've got the fourth biggest bonus pool mm-hmm. um and i think you hear about this a lot every year but teams up top maybe are more incentivized to to hunt for haircut deals just because there isn't a clear pecking order for that top group right I mean, spreading the, the wealth exactly i mean the orioles have done this previously they just did it last year so it wouldn't surprise me to see teams up top 
taking a haircut and then trying to spread the wealth. And I mean, I would love to see teams put a lot of money in high school players' pockets further down the draft board and see how many of those guys you can overslide just because I think the high school hitting class this year is really good. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, our final question for you uh, from the Twitter world comes from another stupid T1. <laughs> Maybe talk about T1 internet lines. I don't know. I like to think that. Uh, and he says, do teams ever react to a player falling to them that they didn't expect and otherwise would have loved by wondering what other teams know in front of them and then get nervous about taking the player themselves? I literally just had a conversation with someone with a team that, that basically had this exact comment. He was like, just talking about a player that they don't expect to get there. But if he does fall, like at that point, you'd think you'd take him. But but then do you get nervous because you don't know why he's falling? Is mm-hmm. there is there information you're missing out on that caused these other teams in front to pass on? So it, it definitely seems like that's that's a worry. Um, I don't have any specific examples of that that definitely happening. Um, recently, you guys might have some good ones that pop out, but it definitely seems like that's a concern. And when, when you're dealing with something with a draft where everyone's trying to get as much information as possible and you're kind of wondering what all the teams around you are thinking, I can't imagine like if a guy, I don't know, one of the guys up top, like if let's just say Jack Leiter, who I don't expect to slide, if he starts sliding, like do teams get a little bit worried? I I can't imagine they wouldn't at least think, think about like why yeah. is he falling to us but i, I don't think know. he would be falling because of money i think exactly like, like, like kumar rocker might be a good example like if kumar rocker mm-hmm. is there at seven eight and they've passed and all of a sudden kumar rocker's around at 11 you're going mm-hmm. oh, oh oh shit what do they know exactly um i've i've been in the room for this one um so 2000 2017 jb bukowskis unc um, guy right and <laughs> um uh did not you know he, he started the year you know being seen as an easy single digit pick he had a, an inconsistent spring and, and and started falling and all of a sudden was like the magnet was still on the board and and um we weren't really sure what to do mm-hmm. um there was a lot of discussion of why is this happening and what are we missing um ultimately took him um because a couple of the players that uh dashers had more interest in kind of went right in front of him um, and they, you know, and pulled the trigger and it was, yeah, it was, it was one of those things where I like, was not expecting him to be there. And now we got to make a decision. It was an interesting thing to see. Um, Libby, Libby's, uh, the other recent one, uh, Matthew Libertor mm-hmm. where like, really it was just because Kyler Murray went and dominoes fell in such a way that, that Libby started to tank. Like, it sounds like his agent hadn't really expected him to fall that far. And, um, the Rays knew that he was motivated to sign and ended up getting him done. Uh, yeah under slot but like yeah it was like at that point uh, during the draft like we're texting people maybe it's definitely harder for carlos who's been on the broadcast to do this but you know i'm sitting at my kitchen table with my computer just texting people in draft rooms and yeah people were like what what's going on here is there something that we don't know about the medical yeah. basically right that and was then- singer fell too that year as well right and i think both mm-hmm. of those teams yeah. that took them they were kind of like the reds they had really big uh, bonus pools kind of in the middle of the first round yeah, and Singer was an interesting case just because Singer didn't light up pitch data teams. Yeah. Um, and so that was – I'm going to – you know, I am an old man, so I'm going to date myself. But I remember in 2008, Justin Smoke. Um, a lot of people, Most people thought Justin Smoke was going to be a top five pick, and all of a sudden he started sliding and ultimately went, I want to say, 11 to the Rangers. Um, yeah. And that, I remember that one specifically too. The Singer one's interesting too because he did not sign out of high school. Yep. And there was like presumption that he had flunked his medical, but – that Blue Jays front office flunked uh, an awful lot of pitchers' medicals. So yes. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> yeah, that, that is true. Um, uh, Carlos, our final question is the question we're asking everyone, which is give us a surprise name that you might see slide into the top 10 picks. 
Oh, into the top 10 picks. That's a good one. Uh, I don't, so I, you can tell me if this doesn't count because Will Taylor is a guy that we had in our last mock in the top 10. I think I that counts. Okay. So I think there's a chance that he could go up there. We've heard a little bit of buzz that he might be, and I think he's probably going to be an expensive sign just with his Clemson commit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I don't think that anyone has him as like a consensus top 10 talent. We have him as a first round guy more in the twenties and then that top 10 range. Right. But that would be one. And then I think Harry Ford might be another who, who I could see I taking a, an underslot deal. I guess a really good one. If I, 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 we were talking to Jim Callis earlier and I took, um, Hoagland who he said, mm-hmm. which, which he, he called that kind of a cop out and he, he might be right. <laughs> um, and if I, I was forced that. to take something a little more dramatic, it would have been, it would have been Harry Ford. There've been. It's I, it's a rumor I don't buy uh, uh-huh. at all, but you know we had to report it because we heard it from a couple teams. But just like if 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 Boston can't pull off the a uh, gambit to get lighter to fall to them or, or mm-hmm. have a big name that they might cut up deal with with a guy like Harry Ford. Um, yep. So, what's your plans for draft day itself, Carlos? Oh man, stress about my mock probably. That's that's the number one on the <laughs> number one on the list. But no. Um... I don't know. I, I think this year is going to be crazy. So I'm really just looking forward to seeing what happens because th- this are, year. Are, are you going to be in Denver? Yeah, I'll be in Denver. I'm flying out tomorrow morning. I'll be on for the first night of the broadcast. So through and the 36 what, okay. picks. Have you picked out a suit? I do. Yeah, I'm just going to use the same one I wore last year. Which <laughs> And which suit is this? It's a it's a navy blue suit. And what tie? Uh, have not picked the tie yet. We, this is a common thing. I did, neither Jim Callis has the suit picked out, but yeah. not the tie. We've been uh, there's you know there's kind of a lot going on, so the tie hasn't really been a pressing uh, pressing in my <laughs> mind lately. But <laughs> so if you want to follow Carlos at Twitter, he's at Carlos A Colazzo. You can also watch him obviously on MLB Network. It sounds like on Sunday night uh, and all that kind of stuff. Do you have anything else you want to plug, Carlos? No, that's it. Just uh, Baseball America for all the the work that we do. Um, so if you want any of our actual draft content, go to Baseball America. But uh, no, that's it. I really appreciate you guys having me on. This is fun and hope you guys uh, have a good draft as well. We will. Thanks so much for coming on, Carlos. Welcome back to the podcast. Time's for our final special draft guest. He has worked for four major league teams. He once was a writer at, how do you pronounce, is it Fan, Fan Graphs? Is that how you say it? And, Graphs. And uh, spent the last 18 months as, what a title, Baseball Insider for the mouse over at ESPN and joining us from his luxurious accommodations in Decatur, Georgia. It's Kylie McDaniel. Kylie, how are you? I'm doing great. I have to say, I have now noticed this week for the first time that my title is ESPN Insider, but I get in trouble if I call the website ESPN Insider. Uh, so I, I I now have like a real conundrum to try to solve here. <laughs> so who do you, you do you say you work for ESPN then? Well, yeah, but like the like the the area where my articles are is called ESPN Plus. And my first tweet about my first article on ESPN Plus, I called it ESPN Insider, and I had three texts in five minutes telling me that I'm calling it the wrong <laughs> thing. And I was like, maybe don't call me ESPN Insider then. As as someone who used to do some freelance work for ESPN, I I remember texts like that for things that I would say on Twitter. Um. <laughs> Get McDaniel in line. <laughs> um, uh, one of my, I was doing a lot of freelance for ESPN and, and working for Prospectus and at the radio show. And I was at the winter meetings in Orlando, mm-hmm. um, which are always on like that Disney property, the Swan and Dolphin. Yep. And someone asked me on Twitter what the Swan and Dolphin is like. And I said, it's okay. And, but then I went to, oh, what's Celebration, Florida? 
Oh boy, and that does not seem like a good idea for you. And then I said, I tweeted that celebration is what America would look like if the Nazis won the war. And okay. I, yeah, and I got some texts and emails from ESPN people about that. I once stayed there, and there have been there. I think it's probably on like the Wikipedia for or whatever. It's like a it's a a man made town is what I was about to say. Every town is man made, but it's like it's a tourist trap. It's like made to look like it's from a certain time period, but it's not. Uh, and it's like a town owned by and operated by Disney. Uh, and there are like there's something about the murder rate there or something like that or like oh, I forget Florida, but it's a weird place. It's very strange. It's strange would, to walk around there. The central yeah. part of Florida is not tailor made for you two. If I <laughs> take some broad generality, I, I've told this story before, but obviously, you know, my my during the first half of my time with the Astros, uh, we springed in Kissimmee. Um, and, you know, spring training is a long time. You're there for a long time. And, and most people, and I would do the same, like you'd fly your partner out for a while. And, and my wife, Margaret, came for a few days. And, um, you know, and we were, it, it was a long drive back to the hotel from, from the actual spring training site. And we're driving down that main, you know, well, kind of that main stretch on, uh, like, I can't remember what the highway is called, but with, you know, with all the shit on it. And, the one that um, leads up to the park in Kissimmee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and we're driving back. It's like a 30, 40 minute drive with traffic. And my, and my wife suddenly turns to me and she goes, no offense, this place sucks. And I went, oh, I'm not offended at all. This is, yes. For, for listeners, it's like if you if you just watch a trailer for the Florida Project, it's like sort of yes. in that general area. Like yeah. the most depressing part of like that general part of the world. <laughs> right. A lot of like really cheap hotels that are all like res hotels now for people on the edges and stuff like that. And and. and bad bad strip malls so i can just... guarantee you any t-shirts sold on that street are not officially licensed <laughs> <laughs> so kylie we uh we're having all sorts of draft guests on we're asking them three questions for twitter are you ready for your draft questions i am i'm kind of nervous about this but i'm ready don't be our first uh our first one comes from eric hartman with an h hartman not eric eric hartman and he says how would an all model no scouting team's board do and this is an interesting question because we might kind of find out this year in the sense that, um, and this is well known throughout the industry, uh, the Cleveland Indians didn't really send scouts to college games this year. The, not until postseason. So the question is like, how would it do? Like what would be the ROI five years from now kind of thing? Yeah. How do you think it would do compared to a more uh, a, a holistic that, a, a, a holistic group? And, and even and as we know, there are teams that lean very, very heavily on simply what the model spits out. I would also say there is a team that proudly tells me off the record we are analytics, <laughs> which I always <laughs> laugh at. Uh, so I, my my first question, which means this is a cop out, uh, what are the other twenty nine teams doing? Because if all twenty nine of them do that, I'd say the return would be really bad. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's let's just say like one team decided to do it this year. Okay, so just take one random team yeah. and say they go full model, no scouting data. Full model, model spits it out, and then they get to their pick, and they go, this guy is a 7.4, and this guy is a 7.3. We're taking the 7.4. See, I think I would say a little bit below average, but they'd have a couple good picks. because, And I would say a little bit below average because I think there is a lack of information, particularly on the college end of things. We were saying going into the spring that this year's Justin Foscue may not get found or if he gets found don't won't get drafted in the right spot because that guy was sort of found late in his sophomore year yeah. SEC tournament he was on people's follow lists team usa gets seen a lot and then he's like sitting in the middle of the first round maybe late first round to start the spring and then people are getting all kinds of looks all kinds of data everyone's forming their opinion that guy this year doesn't get discovered a sophomore year doesn't have a summer 
smart teams maybe get on him in the fall preseason and then the teams a little behind the curve get on him middle of the season and they only have one spring and maybe aren't able to like line that up ahead of time and I think that kind of guy is the guy you're going to miss on, especially hitters, because you need like sort of more data. It's more of a linear growth. Whereas pitchers, it's like if you get one outing, you get a decent idea of what that guy looks like. Maybe get some video from another outing. Um, so I would say, yeah, with especially with college hitters, I don't think it'd do that well. I think they would miss on those mid-major college hitters that I like, Trey Sweeney, Tyler Black, maybe Connor Norby if you consider him that, Ethan Wilson in South Alabama. I think it'd miss on those guys, and I think it would miss on the spring-only high school guys. Uh, which once you get past the first 15, 20 picks, there's a lot of those guys. Um, so I think the first pick would probably be pretty good, and I think it would get spotty late, like second to fifth round. And then I think mm. sixth to tenth, it would be pretty good because it could take some like mid-major, got some track man, take a quality you like. Like I think they'd do okay there, but I, I think rounds two through five would be that pocket where they would fall behind. Our next question comes from Bundler MCD, who likes to bundle MCD, I assume. And he says, uh, I, it seems with limited data... With the limited data this year, do you expect some mega underslot bonuses and surprise picks early to diversify the risk and get as many late first, second round types as possible? Yes. So uh, I have been answering some questions about that recently. The team that this comes up for the most is Cincinnati because they lean, I would say, traditional scouting. Not all the way, but they definitely lean that direction. And mm-hmm. they're picking 17, 30, 35, and 53. And they have the biggest draft pool, right? Is it? I don't know if it's the biggest draft pool, but they definitely have like, yeah, once you get outside of the top 10, I think they have the most flexibility for sure. And so I have found in the past, when a team has a an advantage with extra picks, everyone assumes they will flex that by going way over and way under and mixing it up and moving the board around. Like two thirds of the time, they don't actually do that. But everybody has like the conspiracy theory, like here's they're going to do some wild thing in the comp round. Watch out. And I actually think Baltimore last year was trying to do it to get Bitsko. I don't know that for sure, but that was my impression. And then yeah. Bitsko didn't make it to the second pick. And so then they went slot, slot, slot and spent the money at the end. Um, so it's certainly possible that you line it up to go that way and you just end up, it doesn't fall the way you want it to. And so you end up spending the money late instead of early. I, the sort of buzz with Cincinnati is somewhere close to slot, maybe a little below at 17 and then flow to mid first rounder, probably high school guy, maybe high school pitcher to 30 and then go way under at 35 with like a second, third round talent, 22 year old college guy cut a million dollars and then basically those three end up playing out straight, but you're effectively trading up from 30 to 20 and down from 35 to, you know, 65 or whatever it is. Like effectively right. doing that in a traded picks scenario. Um, speaking more generally, I would say because of some of the stuff I referred to with a lack of college data, I think you'll see some 22-year-old college pitcher go up real high. I mean, there's like literally like 15 of them that are top three-round talents that should all be sort of discounts if taken where their talent is because they don't want to be 23-year-olds. I mean, nobody wants to be a 23-year-old, but, you know, 23-year-old in the draft. Um, so I, I think there's going to be a lot of those guys. Gavin Williams is probably the foremost of those. But, I mean, all the way down to Alex Abbott, Dominic Hamill, Kevin Abel. There's, all, there's like literally 50. I'm not going to name them all. So I think there's opportunities because of the five-round draft that some of those underslot options are not just pure seniors that have been passed over and are sort of land and knack, pop-up, you know, mid-major type guys. They're, like, actually, like, name brand. They're, like, Andrew Abbott has been seen a lot out of Virginia or Tommy Mace or, you know, whatever. I said I'm not going to name them all. Um, but also... You've already named six. I mean, you only got nine to go. Yeah. I mean, maybe we'll finish up there. <laughs> um, and I would and I say the last part of that would be this year, a little less than last year, but possibly because there's more rounds, maybe more so. If a high school guy you like is a, a good example would be Ryan Gilbert, high school outfielder out of uh, Indiana. 
or no, Ohio, going to Indiana. Uh, big guy, big exit velos, good performance against not great competition, didn't do summer stuff. So the consensus around him relative to a normal year, like two, three years ago, is lower uh, because he didn't do summer stuff. And then this spring, everyone's scrambling to catch up on the college guys. They don't see him as much, get a couple of private workouts. There's more guys like him that maybe some teams don't even really have on the board. Other teams want to pay him $800,000 late. So I think there's more options to go under high and there's more options to go over late, which means you should probably see both of those happen more often. So do you think we'll see more kind of under slot deals because teams are aware that they're going to have all these guys late for them that they can go over slot on? Because that's probably part of the strategy. Like I can go under slot here, but who am I going to spend it on? And you need to have multiple options because if you're trying to wait 30 picks, you can't just have one guy. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think once you get past about 20 to 25, I think that's when you're your Gavin Williams, all those guys start to come into play. And once you see, you know, Matt Mikulski out of Fordham go like 35 to Cincinnati, which is a rumor, uh, then it's like, oh boy, if they haven't taken Andrew Painter at 30, then they're about to take a big swing later or like three medium swings later. So like once you see one of those guys go off high, which I, I would bet two of them go in the top 50 and then a bunch of them go like 50 to 100. And it, and it does feel like there's probably, and I'm not going to name them all, like 10 to 15 high school bats, infielders and outfielders who could go anywhere from 20 to 50. Yeah. And the order, when you ask teams, like, what do you think? Like there's some teams will be like Tyler Whitaker. He should go 25. We love him. You won't get to us. And other teams are like Tyler Whitaker, not my guy. We take him in the third round. And right. Same thing with Jay Allen. I've heard mid third round and mid first round on Jay Allen from like totally reasonable scouts that I almost always agree with are two rounds apart on this guy who's been seen a lot and was in Florida. I saw him three times last summer and still nobody seems to agree on this guy. <laughs> Our final question comes from Oriole Tweets. And he says, name one thing that the Major League Baseball professional knows about the draft process that the informed fan does not. Uh, the one I usually go to here is the, and Kevin, and actually Eric too, but Kevin specifically, the variance from team to team. I think the average fan, even like a pretty big draft fan, will see like, you know, I have Ryan Cusick 30th, that other side has him 25th, another one has him 35th. I think they think no one has him higher than 20 and no one has him lower than 40. And like, there's a team that has him 87, I can guarantee you. Mm-hmm. Or, like, doesn't have them on the board. There's, like, probably one team that just, like, took them off the board due to medical and 29 teams are like, are you crazy? Like, the variance from team to team is way more wild than you think it is. And I say it every year, and every year people are like, are you sure? And I'm like, I'm telling you. I've heard some of these things. I'm not going to repeat, like, the team and stuff. But, like, Jay Allen's a good example. Like, I was told, I told somebody I'm going to go see him this spring. And they said, don't go. He's going to school. He's a third rounder. And now I've heard, like, multiple spots in the top 20. He's had private workouts that are blowing people away. And I was right. just like, how is this the same player two months apart? And I, I do think I, I think the variance is still huge. I, th- I think it's less than it used to be, especially on pitching in the sense that we teams have become a bit of a monoculture on pitching as far as looking at the data and stuff. But like I remember, you know, like maybe the first three drafts or so with the Astros, like we got the pitchers we wanted um, and we'd take guys and he's going to be there then and, and nobody else sees what we see. And, and that's, that's no longer the case. Everyone's looking at TrackMan data. Everyone's looking at that Rapsodo data and all that kind of stuff. And it really started to change like around 2015 where all of a sudden the pitcher that the Astros really like would go off the board and you go, oh, you saw it too, huh? You know, and, and it turned into multiple teams started doing that. And then you realize that everyone's looking at the same stuff now with pitching at least. Yeah, leaning into the data heavily was a huge advantage, and it was zigging when people were zagging, and it was you know a handful of teams or one team, depending on the year. And now it's like, if you don't look at the data, you're going to be shocked when this guy goes. Uh, at a certain right. like I, Quick story, when I was with the Braves, uh, we had a scout uh, from the Midwest say, I like these two Dallas Baptist pitchers. I like this one more than that one, because I think this one can start. They're both relievers, and that one I don't think can. And he pulled me aside afterwards and goes, what do you think? Because I was like looking at the spreadsheets and the you know, track man and whatever, and he goes, what are they going to go on? I'm like... 
don't want to like call you out. They're going to go in the opposite order you said. And he's like, why? And I showed him the IVB numbers and the approach angle numbers. And I was like, it doesn't matter if one of them can start. This guy's going to get swings and miss on his fastball. And this one's not. And he's like, so you're telling me I've been scouting for 25 years. And a thing I literally can't see is the reason I was wrong about these guys. Cause they went in the exact same order. I said, the guy that went higher is a prospect. The other guy is not anymore. So like it, it kind of went out in a way I would, I would guess it would have gone out. And he was like very depressed that I explained to him like a thing <laughs> that I cannot see is the reason this guy's going ahead. All the stuff you did in this situation didn't really matter matter uh and that was like when he was like i gotta start looking at this stuff and i was like yeah like i'm not gonna hit you over the head you gotta want it you gotta you know take it in and like want yeah. to understand it but like yes right or wrong this is what's gonna happen because of this number so you gotta be on that number or else you're gonna feel like you're wrong with again whether you're wrong or not you're gonna feel like you're wrong when everyone in the room says the thing opposite from you um final question we've asked all of our experts this give us one name that could be a surprise pick among the top 10 selections Ooh. Um, all right, I'm going to give you two, depending on what your definition of surprise is. Okay. Uh, I, I would guess you guys probably don't think it would be a surprise if Colson Montgomery goes 10, right? Would I be, think we, I would. You would have told us that last week. We would have said yes. Now, now it's not. The, all right, so the one I would say is Frank Mazzucato at 9. Ooh. That's, the, that's like the one with the most like actual signal to it that might actually happen. Um, I was told they were three deep at his last start, had a private workout. They're talking about him. I don't think it happens. It's, you know, 5% chance, but it's it's above zero. And I would right. I would guess most people would say it's probably zero. <laughs> what are your plans for Sunday, Kylie? Uh, well, I want to watch the final of the Euros, but it seems like the wrong day to really focus on soccer. Um, I think I'll... I don't know. I mean, obviously we have like the 7 Eastern, the broadcast begins. I would imagine I'll be there a couple hours early, even though I'll be a couple blocks from the Futures game. I'm guessing I won't go to it just because I don't want have time to change clothes. So I'll probably just be watching stuff on monitors and uh, getting a little too into how my hair looks that day. And then uh, and then yapping until my voice goes out. Have you picked a suit out? Uh, I've got it down to two final options. I, I think I'm, I think I've got the answer, though. What is the answer? I think it's going to be a three piece gray number. OK, have you, have you, have you selected a tie? Uh, no, but that's also down to two or three options. I think I'm going to go bl- blue check shirt, and then that narrows it down dramatically when I've make, made those two color options. This is universal now. Of the, of, the, of the three people we've talked to who need to wear a suit on Sunday, everyone has a suit picked out. No one has a tie picked out. Yeah. Well, they, well and also my wife's traveling with me. So at some point, it's like, she, I mean, she's going to make the call, but, uh, but I'll, I'll bring all the options. Who on the ESPN set is most likely to make fun of the fact that you have a three-piece suit on? Ooh, uh, it's like a seven-way tie between everybody. <laughs> I will also say that uh, it got me for about 10 minutes, but at the draft combine, I was sitting in the middle of like one uh, team scouting contingent and they were giving me crap for my hair for a good 20 minutes. And it kind of made me question like, is my hair way off or are they just being mean for the fun of it? And I'm actually not sure yet, but I've decided I'm going to stick with it. Kylie, what's it like to have hair? Uh, it's it's kind of annoying, really. Uh, I mean, I don't know what it's like to to not have hair. I'd like to not find out, uh, but I would imagine it's much lower maintenance and you don't think about it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like every every athlete wants to be a musician. Every musician wants to be an athlete. It's sort of like, you, you know, you catch the, 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 the dog catches the uh, garbage man. Like, what does he do? It's just one of those things where you're never going to find out, but you always are interested. Yeah, I just I just would like to have options that I don't have. That's I'm told women in bangs is the same way, too. <laughs> I'm not going to profess to know, but I've heard it enough that I think, it, I think that's the, the corollary. Uh, if you want to follow Kylie on Twitter, you should do so. He's at KylieMCD. You can read him his stuff over at ESPN Insider. <laughs> it's just, or your phone call. <laughs> ESPN no Plus. 
And, and the also, mayor of Celebration is going to be upset about this. And, and you can always uh, watch him on The Worldwide Leader. Kylie, thanks so much for joining us and have a really good time on Sunday. Thanks for having me, guys. It was good to be back. And uh, I think it's pronounced Fangraphs. <laughs> thanks, Kylie. Welcome back to the podcast.
Big thanks to everyone for coming on. Jim Callis, Carlos Colazzo, Kyle McDaniel, Keith Law. Very nice of them to uh, give us a little bit of their time during what is an incredibly busy period in everyone's life who covers the draft. It was good to get their insight and a couple laughs. Um, before we move on, let's talk about our musical guest this week. The music you've been hearing is from the Australian band Dead. Um, kind of angular punk rock, bit of a gang of four sound, but maybe a little heavier. Um, they are run, it's, it's a two person band. It's just Jem and Jace. Jem plays drums. Jace does bass and vocals. Um, and, and very cool dudes. And they do it, uh, very, uh, DIY approach. They make all of their own merchandise, do all their own artwork and run their own label that they release their records on as well as many other, um, interesting Australian bands. Uh, the, the record label is called We Empty Rooms. If you want to know more about Dead, you can go to deadsounds.com. And uh, they have a, a very entertaining bio that ends with uh, how to get in touch with them if you want the, to interview or have them play shows or whatever. And it ends with, if you want to just say good day, please do. It's awesome when people tell us they like what we do. And if you hate us, don't bother letting us know. We don't actually care. And all I can say is same. So uh, thanks to Dad, thanks to, to Jem for getting in touch with us, and thanks to a uh, big musical friend of the podcast, Conan Neutron, for getting us in touch with Dead. Fun to play them. Check them out, deadsounds.com. You know, talk about the draft some more, Eric? Yep. Do you ever get tired of the draft at any point during this whole thing? I, 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 it's fun. Like, I, I'm, I'm excited about what's going to happen Sunday still. Uh, not not now. I think that there's there are definitely points where I like want to be done with different stuff. Like yeah, the Tuesday of area codes, I'll be like ready to go home. You know, like there will be. <laughs> I'll have been there for like four days all day, and I'll just be like, you know, tomorrow's pitchers are gonna be the same guys who threw the first day of the thing. Like let's drive home. But um, but no, not not now. I'm tired in general, but I'm not tired of the thing. And it kind of feels like I always say it's about the winter meetings or the winter meetings. I love going to the winter meetings. The winter meetings are always like Monday. Yeah, the winter meetings. This is fun. Then Tuesday is like, this is more fun. And I'm seeing friends. And then on Wednesday, it's like, I want to go home. Yeah, I don't know what it is about. I, you know, I think it's people when they get home from vacation are like excited yeah. to be home and stuff. So I think it's it's perfectly natural. But um, But no, I will I will be stoked about the draft until – Sometime, well, even on like day three when we would go 40 rounds, at some point I'd be ready for it to be done, I guess. But but it's just cool when you're on the, the conference calls going and you've had like eight picks in a row or longer than that where it's like players that you actually don't know anything about and they're just like the area scouts responsibility and they're filling an organizational need. Right. And then all of a sudden there will be like a guy who I saw at the WAC tournament and <laughs> There's also like like and when when do you like let's set an over under you ready yeah this is always a fun thing over under uh, on just the pick number where the team will announce their pick and you will say to yourself and it's never fun but you will definitely do it I don't know who that is yeah when's that gonna be it comes oh, usually comes I mean it, and not to say that like we don't you know talk to scouts and know a lot of players and can name literally hundreds of draft guys but it always comes earlier than you think. Right, yeah. Last year it was Evan Carter in the second round. Second round, um, yeah. I don't know who that is. And for sure, last year and this year will be subject to this too. They're going to be more volatile because of stuff that occurred with COVID. 
uh, we're just more likely to miss somebody because this year there are more guys to miss because last year's draft was very short. And last year, because we only had a month worth of evaluation time, basically, yeah. uh, before everything was shut down. So, uh, yeah, I think that last year and this year, the two were, were like most likely to be embarrassed. But like, didn't the who was the Cubs pitcher who went who people didn't know in the first round? Oh God, the kid that yeah, the 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 the, the Wilkin pick from some little school when he threw like ninety nine and didn't work out. Yeah, I forget. Oh, I'm going to kill is. myself now. Keep talking while I look this up because it's going to distract me the rest of the show. But like Keith's got stories about that and like Mason Williams and stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe a surprise, but so a pick that people knew. Why do I see a P? I forget who the the Cubs pitcher is. It's not Phil something. No, I'm looking it up right now. We're going to get this. Yeah. Um, and then you know, there's always weird stuff. Like remember Onelki Garcia. Yo, God, do I remember Onelki Garcia. Yes. There was like controversy as to whether or not he was eligible. Eligible, right. Hayden Simpson was the Cubs Hayden pick. Hayden Simpson. In the 2010 pick, uh, the 16th pick out of Southern Arkansas University in Magnolia, Arkansas. Have you ever been to Magnolia, Arkansas? No, I've been to Fayetteville I, and that's it. I have been to Magnolia, Arkansas for like a week. <laughs> what were you doing there? Previous life and... and <laughs> In my, uh, okay. I, I, yeah, I was working for, uh, 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 I was a system administrator for a consulting firm and they were doing like this huge consulting gig for this company in Magnolia, Arkansas that made, um, giant pieces of foam that, <laughs> <laughs> that went into, uh, that went into aircraft bulkheads and things like that. Okay. And, 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 and it was Magnolia, Arkansas and it was a man, that's a, it is, if you are going to. Imagine if I told you there's a new prestige television show that takes place in a town called Magnolia, Arkansas. Whatever you're imagining it's like, it's exactly like that. Oh, okay. So, yeah, some of the architecture stuff I guess I can picture in my head now. Yeah. Like it's lots of columns and stuff. Uh, it's, it's not it's, – it's, it's, it's it is a declining industrial town. It is a depressing place. Uh, um, yeah, it, 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 it was something else. It was the kind of place where I paid with cash because I didn't want people to see my last name on my credit card. Uh, I, you know, I, when I went to Fayetteville, I was there for a regional. It was like, uh, Missouri state, Jake Berger, Jeremy Ironman was an underclassman. Yep. Home of Mississippi state to be clear. Yeah. Just so everybody knows. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Fayetteville, Arkansas. I guess Arkansas. <laughs> God, where am I? My brain is gone. When I got to like the airport, people were asking me like, Oh, are you here for the Walmart share shareholders meeting? And I was just like, no, but. It's it's upsetting me that you're, you're making that snap judgment based on looking at me. <laughs> Did you go to the Walmart Walmart shareholder? No, meeting? no. I went to regionals. I hung out on the Arkansas campus a little bit. Um, How was that? It was pretty nice. There was like a nice breakfast spot. There's like a a railroad. There's a nice trail that people were like running and biking and pushing their kids on strollers and. It was a young eclectic group of people, as you would see in any college town. And then you get. Yeah. 10, 15 minutes out of Fayetteville because I drove from Fayetteville to Springfield to, f- to see Cardinals double A. Um, and then I flew home from Spring- Springfield. It's just easier to fly out of that airport to back to Phoenix. Right. Is anywhere else like actually in Fayetteville? Um, and yeah, like it's that stretch of highway between Fayetteville and Springfield is like any other stretch of highway in middle America. It's just like, oh, there's a CVS once in a while. And. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, just on like this stretch of highway that's got McDonald's and Hardee's and all this other stuff like just optimized for 
taking your dollars away somewhere along the strip of road. Right. I, I, like I, you I need gas. I had Starkville on the brain because it's someone, I, I, you know, I say what I say about Magnolia, Arkansas, but I, something came up. I can't remember. I think it might've been in a chat about uh, Mississippi state and, you know, someone made like a standard kind of, Oh, it's the deep South. They're all horrible. I've been to Starkville. It's actually really nice. And people there are really nice. Like it's not, the South is not some monoculture of, of podunk kicks or anything like that. There are plenty of very cool people in the South and really cool things to do there. It's not, you know, the deep South has all sorts of problems, but it's not like right. you go down there and it's a nightmare. Yeah. And um, we could, I don't know if we want to talk about it on the podcast, but yeah, the last, <laughs> the last couple of years, really like the last six years has, I've been thinking really hard. Just I sit and just like, why, how is this happening? And I do think it's just like education and yeah, this is like a thing that I've went through personally here in Arizona because my ex-wife is a teacher and didn't want to be here anymore. Like it was becoming very frustrating how underfunded, especially in Arizona, mm-hmm. schools and public education are and how sort of broken the system is. And it's ultimately part of what like led to the death of our marriage and her to move to China. Uh, and so it does seem especially evident in the deep south parts of our country where you're just more likely to have real holes that end up having repercussions when people become adults and then like can't parse reality. Right. Take care of your people. I, I say that. That's my message to every nation. Take care of your people. Let's go back to the draft, Eric. Okay. Let's talk about things are going to go down. So the draft starts um, Sunday, early evening. Um, we already talked about the first pick. And, and I, it's weird because I kind of feel better about the first pick than I do about the next three. Uh, it feels good that, that it's going to be Marcelo there. Um, right now in our mock, we have Jack Leiter going to the Rangers um, I think I would still do that. Um, yeah, yeah. I think tomorrow. I'd still do it. And then, like, there's still a bit of wild card. The real, the real wild card right now, I think, for a lot of teams is three with the Tigers. Um, where right now we have Brady House, who I think is definitely in the mix. Um, I think Henry Davis is in the mix, and I think uh, for sure Jackson Job's in the mix. They seem like kind of the first domino that could fall in terms of. Um, breaking everybody's mock. Yeah, I think uh, I think when push comes to shove, I will be pretty. I will be pounding the table for us not to put Jackson Job there in our in our mock. Mm-hmm. The reasons to put him there are that a source I trust very much saw the Tigers five deep at one of his starts late in the year. Like that's. You're not bluffing. That's there's not a five person smokescreen going over. No, absolutely not. Everybody's time to do that. Like you're seriously considering it at that point. But ultimately, uh, I do think that of the teams feeling pressure to perform sooner than later, the Tigers are near the top of the list, and taking the high school arm is not like no, like that's not the way a team that's feeling that pressure would ordinarily behave. Uh, I've been critical in the past of teams who bend to that type of pressure but i also don't think like i don't i would just not take i would not use a top five pick on a high school arm i really really would not um you'd have to think that this were, were kershaw to do something like that right so um then if you're if you're one of those teams who's already if you're if part of your decision making is the context of your competitive timeline and you saving your job then taking Henry Davis, who overlaps with either Spencer, either Spencer Torkelson or Dylan Dingler, 
Uh, like that doesn't seem to make sense to me either. Like he overlaps with both of them. So not if you see him as a corner outfielder. I guess not, but I, I just think that the the Riley Green type of pick is Brady House, mm-hmm. where yeah, it's a corner. I, I like that. That's the, a good way to put it. The Riley Green type of pick, yeah. Where it's like a high school performer who checks a lot of the boxes, definitely has the type of power to middle to anchor the middle of your order. You worry about him moving to a corner, but you feel good about the hit power combination if that's the case. That's exactly what Riley Green was. It's like, ooh, is he athletic enough to play center field? Like, no. But he hits well enough and has the requisite power to profile on a corner anyway. Jared Kelnick was this type of guy too and was older than Brady House. So I really think that if I'm just reading the tea leaves based on the team's past behavior, the context of of the front office's predicament, uh, that like House is an advanced sort of high schooler, mm. uh, you know. Like I really feel as though that's that's a great fit for all the reasons I, j- I just stated. But but yeah, I think understanding the thing that the wild card is is what happens with lighter, um, and I don't know, I don't know. But I think the the stuff I'm really interested to see happen is like Detroit has a ton of picks, yeah, and Cincinnati has a ton of picks. And, like, what are they going to do with, with the rest of those? And does that influence team behavior in, like, the middle of the round? And Colton Kowser, I'm just a Colton Kowser stan, I guess, at this point. Like, no, I'm with you. I, it's, I he's think awesome. This guy's, yeah, he's got, it's, a, it's a really good body. It's, it's a good bat. He's got real power. And, and, and talking to some people in the game, it sounds like the models are spitting him out uh, in terms of just pure offense only behind Henry Davis in terms of the college class. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that... It'll be funny to do the futures game right before the draft, and then have seen a bunch of like the best pro players who are almost uh, all of them. It's just funny this that three year window of development between year eighteen and twenty one is just so yeah. important that most all the players who I see during the futures game, I'll feel like, oh, this guy's better than Henry Davis or whatever you know. <laughs> yeah, you just see these guys up close on on a big league field next to one another i think it will it'll be interesting to put the draft talent in perspective like literally hours before it it happens right and then at picks six through ten i think are going to be probably the most fascinating just in the sense that no matter what happens um in the first five rounds there are going to be you know probably two high school shortstops um kowser possibly job um college arms like rocker and madden um, there's going to be kind of more than five players who are definitely going to be concer- being considered as top 10 picks. And it'd be interesting to see how that's going to go down. And, and in talking to teams and talking to people, um, it feels like a lot of them are just kind of lining up magnets and just seeing what's there because they, they, they don't feel that they don't have any confidence in what might or might not be there. So we asked the guests and sort of put our own opinions out there as to who would be the surprise pick to go inside top 10. But who are the guys that you think are going to slide? I still wonder about Rocker, and, and we talked about this earlier, just because I can't, I, I've yet to someone say, oh, if Rocker there's, we take him. Like, I just can't, I can't find that guy. Um, and I do wonder if, uh, and we talked about the sixth pick with Arizona, and, I, and I'm and i with you that, you know, they would, I think they would consider the high school shortstops on the board over Rocker. But I think what could get interesting is, let's say the Diamondbacks take Jordan Lawler, um, like where's Watson's home all of a sudden? I just think that, uh, and, and, that, and, and I think vice versa is also true. Yeah, that that's the one I think is is more likely to happen. Is like is Lawler? Yeah, one of I think one of Lawler and Rocker will be the one 
to fall. I think Watson has homes realistically during the process. Six, seven, eight have all been linked with Khalil Watson. Uh, and so I think that he comes off the board in that range if he doesn't at five, like he's been mentioned with Baltimore at five too. Um, so I think that, yeah, anywhere between five and eight for Khalil Watson, he's got a lot of potential landing spots, whereas there haven't been, people haven't had reason to attach Jordan Lawler to any of those teams because uh, it was just assumed that he'd come off the board before that. So mm-hmm. I think one of Rocker or Lawler is at risk of falling. I think the way, the feedback we've been getting from teams like, just on the phone, hey, it, do you think Ty Madden might be there when we pick in the back yeah. third of round one is just an indication that they are hearing this guy has a chance to slip for whatever reason. Uh, Sam Bachman from um, Miami of Ohio, hard-throwing righty with some medical stuff, hip and, uh, hip and, surgery in the past. And, and some scouts who think it's pure, pure pen. Right, and you know, Garrett Crochet came off the board where he did last year with people thinking that too, so... Um, he's another one where does he fall because either teams think it's reliever or medical stuff or both. Uh, I think that's a distinct possibility. And then we have like the, the high schoolers who become unsignable at some point, the two sport kids, Clemson, Bubba Chandler, Will Taylor, uh, Braden Montgomery and Thatcher Hurd are two. Braden Montgomery is another two, two way guy, mm-hmm. uh, headed to Stanford and Thatcher Hurd is going to UCLA. It sounds like Hurd did not pop enough from a velo standpoint to like be signable. Uh, we have him at 44th on the board. Uh, I saw him 88-91 in his first spring outing in January, and I thought he was awesome. Like vicious breaking ball, ultra athletic, smooth, like has all those traits. But the velo plateaued. He just sort of stayed in that 88 to 91 range, and it sounds like where teams have him is not going to be enough to keep him from UCLA. So those are the names, Braden Montgomery uh, and Thatcher Hurd, who I think like just by default will be at the top of our 2024 board coming out the other end of this, uh, where it's just like the high school guys who don't sign who we had ranked highest on our board mm-hmm, will be mm-hmm. at the top of the 2024 group. So uh, yeah, I think that's, that's the other thing I'm sort of looking at as well. Yeah. And you say UCLA and Stanford are both teams when you uh, when you see that's the commitment, you get a little concerned about the signability. It's really tough at times to get kids away from UCLA um, and really tough to get kids away from Stanford. Some people put Florida and Vanderbilt in there, but I think those two schools are um, more player specific where there's some kids who are definitely going and some teams that just some kids who just happen to commit there and are definitely signing. Um, they, they end up getting like way more commitments than a roster, you know. Virginia is the other one where mm-hmm. uh, Nate Savino, Mike Vassell, like a lot of the high-end high school pitching has not only ended up matriculating to Charlottesville, but often goes to campus early. Like you'll have some of these coaches tell players, hey, your grades finishing up high school are not very good. And so to keep a full scholarship, you have to come to summer school here at this college and often, like, once you step on campus, basically, if you walk into a classroom, then you're ineligible for the draft. Right, which is also, let's be honest, like, they, they do care about the kids' education, but that's also a huge part of the strategy to keep Correct. the kids. Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, not so, a, yeah. it's not a purely, uh, it's not a completely pure suggestion. You're also going to have the college coaches, this is a thing that happens at Florida a lot, where you'll get promised, oh, Tommy Mace will get drafted. So you'll be our Friday night guy next year. So even though you're eligible and might come off between rounds five and ten, like come back next year and be our Friday night guy. We'll compete for a college World Series 
and you'll go in like the third round if you pitch well. Like look at Tommy Mace. He came off the board higher than he would have last year where he when he didn't throw very well. So like we'll just do it for you. And so yeah, college coach has been a promising uh, kid some of this stuff. So uh, we don't know how that's – that stuff we don't know. Like on day, day two of the draft will be winding down. There will be some high-profile players who haven't gone and will ask somebody and learn like, oh, it's because the coach has promised this and that. Right, right, and and we talked about this with earlier with the guests, but like the eleventh round's a lot of fun. Eleventh uh, round is where you get the kids who, you know, the teams who still have bonus money to spare from their bonus pool, they start popping on guys in the eleventh round. I looked in the in the, you know, we didn't have an eleventh round last year, but in the 2019 eleventh round, more than half the players got over the 125 slot, and nine of the 30 got 250 or more. Yeah, um, it's a big round. Yep. Um. I think the 20s are going to be interesting in the sense that if you line up the talent, there's like this big group of high-performance college bats, guys with really good numbers who are going to do very well in the models, but who might not be the toolsiest dudes in the world, might not kill you on a scouting level, and then like truckloads of high school bats who you could make an argument for as a late first-round talent. Um there's going to be a run on one of those player groups, and, and I don't know which one. Do you have any any thoughts there? I'll take that as a no. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Probably <laughs> no. yeah. Um, I, think, uh, I think it's more likely to be the high schoolers in that range because they are going to be signable at slot there. And I do feel like... And the like college guys will be signable a little below. You know, it's not, it's not like, you know, Connor Norby's not going to sign if he goes 43. Right. Um, and then just the question is, strategically, is there something about the depth of this draft that we're underrating the impact it's going to have on on strategy? Are there teams who are just going to go, you know what, like, they're all there are all these COVID freshmen who are eligible, who we like, who maybe we can say, like, yeah, don't don't take anything less than... 1.5 million and we'll have it waiting for you in like the fourth round. Like, I don't know how yeah. that's going to shake out. Um, where if you, if you are picking whatever it is, 20th or 25th and the slot is like close to 2.5 and you just start giving people a million, a million bucks, you know, and you just end up with like eight players for a million dollars rather than like one for two and a half and then yep. one for one and a half. Like, I don't know. So, uh, but I do think it's more likely to be the high schoolers just because of the signability piece and because of the the confidence interval. Like most of the decision making decision makers in that first round were at the high school showcase stuff last summer, but there wasn't Cape Cod. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it it still I think is going to matter who people in the room making the decisions saw and didn't see play well in person. And uh, that the models are going to be, certainly the model-driven teams are the model-driven teams, but the models are going to be less reliable. And I think that there's there's a difference between letting the model set your board and letting the model dictate your behavior. Mm-hmm. Like, I believe that Cleveland is a model-heavy team, right? And they've behaved in an extreme way in the sense this year where the area scouts didn't do college stuff until the postseason, and all of the college analysis done by Cleveland was on video and via data. But still last year, they like cut a deal with Carson Tucker in the first round. Yeah. And did overslot stuff with like PD Halpin and like 
you know, they they didn't behave in such a way where I don't think Carson Tucker was 19th or wherever he was the overall pick, like on their model. I believe the model sets their board, but it doesn't dictate their behavior. They're like different, different things. Right. Um, and so I still think that those teams, as much as they might like Tyler Black from Wright State or Connor Norby or whoever, uh, are, are more likely to lean on high school guys that they've actually seen and uh, like want to spend that kind of money on. You ready to respond to some breaking news? Oh, yeah. It's not, it's, it's not. These are the players who will be in attendance to the oh. draft in person when you watch the, the, the in-person show on MLB Network. Um, they always have a couple of players sitting in a fake dugout where you can get drafted. And um, this is interesting because I don't think I would, you know, if you said, well, all these players go in the first round, I would say I would bet against it. I wouldn't I mean, I'd take the field, if you will. Um, Wake Forest right-hand pitcher Ryan Cusick, who um, probably has a ceiling in the 20s, but might not go in the first round. Yep, I agree with that. Louisville catcher Henry Davis, who we talked about, is yeah, who's going to be a top five pick. Um, New York prep catcher Joe Mack, who I feel late, like he goes back late, at first. Yeah, late teens to the somewhere in the twenties, more likely. Um, Fordham left-handed pitcher Matt Mikulski, um, late twenties to to maybe the first half of of maybe like a comp pick. Yeah, he's going to be someone's. I think of all the guys who are likely to be. He's most likely underslot, like first round, comp round, yeah, guy. I think uh, just because he's twenty two, he's a senior, you know. Yeah, Indiana prepster, uh, infielder Colson Montgomery, um, who has rumors all over the board. Yep, feels uh, like somewhere between ten and the White Sox pick, though. Yeah, okay, that's good. So that's twenty three. Is that there? I think um, New Jersey high school right hand pitcher Chase Petty. One of the more polarizing players in the draft. Um, someone's going to pop him in the first. He, he can get up to 100. He is a vicious slider. Um, he's also small and has an um, unattractive delivery. Uh, a lot of bullpen list risk to chase Petty, but the stuff is, is hard to argue with. Um, Eastern Illinois shortstop Trey Sweeney, who definitely seems to be moving up boards. Another guy who really blows up models because there's three, you know, three things models really look at. You know, ability to make contact. Uh, ability to hit for power uh, and a good approach. He has all three of those things. Um, and, he's not, and he's probably not a shortstop, but yeah. but offensively he's pretty impressive. And then Kansas State lefty Jordan Wicks, who's who's in that kind of tier two of college arms below the big boys, who's, who, who could go in the teens and probably so, will. So it's interesting that it's uh, like Wicks. I think Wicks went to the combine just to interview. Yeah. And Montgomery was at the combine and worked out and stuff. And so, yeah, it's interesting that there's a smattering of – Guys who did the the combine as well, who have been invited to the draft. So uh, let's talk about what we're doing for the draft. Again, begins on Sunday, early evening. Um, you will be there. I will be here. Um, we will have a big old chat thing going during the draft at Fangraphs, correct? Yeah, it's just like a normal chat interface. It's just going to be yeah. Kevin and I reacting to picks funneling news that we're getting through our contacts in draft rooms. Uh, and I don't, I guess we'll probably be tweeting picks before they happen. Like you I, tell, I, I, I got to tell you, you do that better than anyone and you will do it better than I do this year. I guarantee it. Well, we will be on the phone with each other almost the entire time because I don't have contacts in Every draft room, and especially this year, as more scouts 
like further down the organizational pecking order will be remote. It may be harder for me to come by real time, like intense dope. Um, this is like the one selfish ego driven thing that I do (laughs) is this, uh, just to be like, Hey, just a reminder that like giraffe neck marks analysis of the draft on YouTube is not real. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like there's a gap between what like people who do this for like a, a real living and what is going on at like, you know, oh, we mock this mock. Here's our mock draft. It's like, yeah, you stole stuff. Like, here's you read, one four, of the, you read, you read five other mocks and, and combined them into. Well, yours. one, here's the thing. One of the guests that we had on told me earlier this year that they planted fake info mm-hmm. in like a harmless location on one of their mock drafts. This is like months ago. And found it, you know, in one of these, like, right. they, they fabricated something to see who was stealing and they, people are stealing. So anyway, but yeah, this is like the one flex, like, look, we have actual sources. The information that we're funneling you isn't like made up, uh, which is hard to, you know, we, we have to protect our sources. So we anonymize them almost all the time. Yeah, for sure. But like, yeah, this is like, oh, this is not, none of this is a lie type thing. Um, so, but yeah, I'll be there. I'm going to go to the Futures game. I'm going to watch BP and infield. If I can find a way to sneak into a hell of a seat for the actual game, like a scout seat, basically, then I'm going to do that. And I'm a rule breaker, and these are the things I do. Um, <laughs> like, someone will have a purchase the seat somewhere, but if I can sit in it for four innings before they show up because they're there for the celebrity softball game or whatever, then like fine, then I'm gonna do that. But You're if in. I can't do that because of security or because of section fullness or whatever, then I will just go back to my hotel. I will not I will watch the futures game on TV, having, you know, consumed BP and infield, you know, which is the most important part of it anyway, to be honest. Um and then I will like get in my jams and get ready to do the draft from like the comfort of my hotel room and hope that the Wi Fi holds out. And then, uh, you know, Eric and I will work on a piece, a standard thing for you to read um, that kind of breaks down what we saw on day one. Uh, day two, uh, still in preparation plans, no exact uh, promises yet, but I think we're going to be doing a Twitch stream for probably the first couple of rounds on right. day and two. And again, the hotel Wi-Fi is part of the Right, we are very that. I will be there. Eric hopefully will be there. Um, and then we'll, we'll just kind of have a little wrap up on the odds and ends uh, coming up at the end of the week. Um, so stay with us. Obviously, uh, we will both be tweeting a lot during the draft and in the aftermath. Um, and we'll be recapping and, and doing all the things we need to do. Uh, as the season goes on, we'll be updating team prospect lists that obviously incorporate their signed picks. Um, here's a question for you. I just thought of this. So th- th- we're going to improv now. We're, we're, we're all Rory Scovel. Um, I watched that. I need to watch it. I'm going to watch it tonight. It's on my listings. Watch that. Is okay. it good? Uh, yeah. I think he's kind of I think he's kind of amazing. I I like Rory Scovel a lot. Yeah, uh, I think he's very good. I think um, but yeah, there's a doc on YouTube about him improvising six consecutive nights of stand up in this like grassroots club in Atlanta, and the doc is also about the club oh, and okay. the guy trying to like get it off the ground and dealing with lots of problems. Gotcha. Okay, I yeah, that's our moment of culture. Well, Rory Scovel is very funny. Um. <laughs> it's, it's, 
you I'm surprised at how much overlap we have with some of this stuff. We do well in stand up, I think. Um, um like yeah. I'm a I, yeah, I like I don't know, I guess I like stand up guys that don't tend to play stand up clubs would be the best way to put it. Um but anyway, I can't remember what Oh, is this what I'm gonna ask you? So you think about a forty round draft, right? Okay. Um you know, there's there's the there's the consideration picks where you take, you know, some player's brother. There are the safety picks in the 30s where, you know, you take some kid who said, I don't pick me, I'm unsignable just in case. And you just take him in case something goes squirrely with someone else you picked above. So you give somewhere to send, you know, throw the money. Um, you have, you know, some Juco picks, guys, guys who really think they're going back to school. And you generally signed in a 40 round draft 30 to 35 guys, right? Yeah. Now we have a 20 round draft. Um, do you think we're going to see a lot of 20 for 20s in terms of signs? I, I, my, my bet is like the, is that the average signing will be 19. Yeah, I would say that's right. I, I think that there are probably a couple teams who will punt on a handful of picks for whatever reason, whether they just like what's in their farm system more than what's left on the board towards the end or yeah. something related to like their bonus pool situation. I, I do think that it will probably be. Yeah, 18 or 19, I think, would be the average number of players signed. Yeah. And, and it's uh, amazing. Like, the 20K guys from last year's draft, I want to say that there are probably close to 10 of them on the board who mm-hmm. either looked good at Instructs or during the spring here. Um, Chase Walter with San Diego and, like... There's some nice finds yeah. there, for sure. Yeah. I, I John McMillan with Kansas City. I think people would... would I I know a team's pro department that is already has already tried to trade for John McMillan. <laughs> nice, yeah. Um, that dude, yeah, he, I saw him. Um, big Velo, um, not exactly a precision guy, yeah. uh, but it's big stuff. Um, so we we've talked a lot about the rounds. Obviously, last year because of the pandemic, we had only five. Um, this year, I guess you could call it um, kind of a small recovery. We have twenty. Uh, we are in the last year of a CBA, um, even though someone I should. I, yeah, I will say so. Someone said to me the other day that like there's actually been at least it's been thrown out there of just kind of rolling this for a year and pushing and just kind of pushing everything back and kind of kicking the can down the road for a year. So they don't have to deal with it in after two years of, of instability. Um, but assuming that doesn't happen, I, I don't think that that's going to happen. Um, you know, there will be a new CBA by the time we draft in 2022. Um, as you know, the draft is always the very last thing that they ever figure out in the CBA. Um, I think two CBAs ago, they actually announced their agreement, had their press conference where they shook hands, and then they went back to the table and figured out the draft. Um, but if you had to predict how many rounds the 2022 draft will be and all drafts moving forward, what would you say? 15. Somewhere between fifteen and twenty, but I would I would bet on the low end. It's just what uh, MLB's proclivity has been. The players' union doesn't really have incentive to look out None. for amateur players. Um, I think that some of it may depend on how teams view what's happening at indie ball and if this like what the Appy League turns into. You know, I think there are some some of the moving pieces that maybe help inform how much 
real talent there actually is. And MLB, if MLB had their druthers, I think that they would like eliminate the ability to sign high school players at all. Uh, that like they would just rather farm out three years of developmental expenses to Division One schools, and know that by eliminating high school signees, you're eliminating the possibility for like someone to be a free agent at 26 again mm-hmm. and get a 350 400 million dollar contract. So um it wouldn't surprise me if some of the the measures were altered with this type of stuff in mind and I think that yeah the low end whatever you think the the range of potential rounds is I would just take the I would just take the low end. Yeah, I think it's probably more 20 to 25 so I would, I'll say 20. I think I think a twenty is just the new the new reality. Um, well, thanks for coming on, Eric, and talking draft for way too long with me. Um, it doesn't feel like that long. It's not that long. And uh, thanks to Jim Callis, Kylie McDaniel, Keith Law, Carlos Colazzo for talking draft with us as well. Um, just stay tuned to Fangraphs for all sorts of good stuff. Like we said, we'll be chatting at Fangraphs.com during the first night on Sunday. Um, you can hang out and we'll give you instant reacts and take your questions, all that kind of stuff like that. Uh, again, there will be likely be some kind of Twitch stream uh, on Monday afternoon. I think it starts at 12 my time, which is central. Um, we'll probably do the first couple of rounds there and, and do verbal quick reactions to what we see. Um, we'll do some recaps and odds and ends and all sorts of stuff, that kind of thing online. Uh, and then we'll have a more quote unquote normal podcast next week. So thanks for listening, everybody.
Well.